This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Thanks for being here. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, the people, process, technology, and strategy, size of change. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all the audio podcast platforms. To be sure to check us out there. And uh, we've got a great episode for you today. Uh, we've got three main segments. We're going to start off with the hot topics and we're going to in those hot topics cover some of the uh, trending topics in the digital transformation space including uh, safety in the metaverse uh, i'll be curious to hear if first of all a is the metaverse unsafe b how how we can be more safe in the metaverse so i'll be curious to hear more about that uh, we're going to get some updates on the great resignation which has been a hot topic ongoing for the last several months if not the last couple years so we'll get some updates on the great resignation we're going to talk about responsible artificial intelligence, courtesy of Microsoft. Uh, be curious to hear more about that. And then finally, within the hot topic segment, we'll also talk about data lakes versus data warehouses. And this is just one of those philosophical uh, nuances that I think a lot of us are really struggling with. So I'll be glad to finally settle the debate over or the confusion over what is a data lake versus a data warehouse. So that's an important uh, resolution you're going to get today in today's show. So those are the hot topics we'll cover. Later, we'll have our first guest on the show, which is uh, Ridwan from our Third Stage Africa office is going to be on the show talking about uh, the role of the CIO and basically what the evolving role of CIOs are and how they can add to the business value of organizations as part of, part of a transformation. So we'll kind of focus on that whole CIO, chief digital officer sort of role and how it's evolving here in the 2020s. So stay tuned for that interview with Ridwan. And then finally, later in the show, we will have uh, Adam Cheatham, who's been on our show in the past. We're going to play a clip of him uh, doing an interview with you, Kyler, talking about Microsoft Dynamics 365 implementation challenges. So that's certainly relevant if you're considering or are going through a digital transformation involving Microsoft D365, or if you're going through any sort of digital transformation of a different sort of enterprise technology, there's still some good lessons learned here and things to consider. And it's also relevant too, by the way, if you are evaluating potential technologies for your organization, um, there's just some good nuances and lessons learned and things to know and be aware of as it relates to D365 implementations. And if anything, that might stimulate some thoughts on, on how you plan for your project, whether or not it involves Microsoft. So stay tuned for that. We'll have Adam on the show later uh, in the podcast. But before we get to our guests, what are some of these hot topics you have for us, Kyler? So I want to start with safety in the metaverse, um, as this has been kind of an overarching conversation, kind of controversial. And it's not just the metaverse, it's it's safety on many um, technology platforms and what that looks like. But basically, I don't know if you know, but there is this 
international telecoms union that the mostly the European Union oversees. And basically it sets international safety standards for technology and telecom, those types of things. So a lot of world leaders are pushing this agency to create some um, safety ratings, similar to how here in the US we have movie ratings um, to just look at what, or we, I guess we have gaming ratings to, to look at what's appropriate for uh, younger gamers or younger movie watchers, content consumers, that type of thing. Because uh, they've seen within the metaverse, we have put a lot of money into developing that avatar-based interaction, right, which is the metaverse. Yet they see kind of some dark web issues creep in, like drug trafficking and, and other things like that. So, um, of course, I want to ask you the most difficult question to start our episode today is, how does safety and technology go hand in hand from a legislative body? Uh, well, that's a that's a tough question. In mm -hmm. fact, I'm going to evade the question temporarily and ask you a question. I, I just I can't I can't gloss over this point. You just <laughs> this is something you just said in passing. Are you saying that you can traffic drugs in the metaverse? Yes, you know, there is ways in which you could make that transaction because oh. it is a transactional platform. You know, as someone who's not familiar with the drug trafficking process myself, I couldn't exactly explain to you <laughs> how that works. But right. um, that was one example, one of the, the less colorful examples that were, you know, safe for a work-based podcast. Yeah, yeah, and I right before we we started filming and recording this podcast, we were talking about the metaverse, and I know the metaverse is something that's come up frequently in this podcast, and yet I am still getting my arms around or trying to get my arms around what the metaverse is. In fact, we were talking about we we're sort of half kidding, or I was only like ten percent kidding, um, but we were talking about how we should get Elon Musk on the show because he could probably explain the metaverse to us in a way that no one else Absolutely. could. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna tweet him after we're done. Uh, Great. You know, so I'm gonna tweet him and say, "Hey, Elon, come on my show. Surely you're a fan. Surely you're listening to the show. So <laughs> could you please join us to explain what in the world the metaverse really is?" So anyway, um, anyway, sorry for that diversion. I just, uh, I think that's just a. The, my question wasn't so much that I thought you might know about drug trafficking on mm -hmm. the metaverse, but just the fact that you can is just uh, fascinating. Yes. And, but that makes sense that they're using it as a payment platform. So back to your question. Your question has something to do with government regulation. And could you repeat the question, please? Yes, absolutely. So government regulation and technology. Are there ever going to be abilities to wrap your arms around a governance system for technological platforms, whether it's a, a metaverse or a social media platform? Elon Musk would have a lot of thoughts on this as well. Um, I think so, you know, another call out to him, but where does that meet? You know, is, is that on a local level? And when you are looking at technologies, mostly as an organization, what are some government structures that you need to make sure that you kind of safeguard when you're looking at implementing a new technology or engaging with a new technology? Oh boy, this is a, such a loaded question. Um, and I'm trying to think of a response that doesn't get too political or share too much about my my political beliefs, but um, because this is a politically agnostic show, in addition to being technology agnostic, we're, of course, uh, politically agnostic. Uh, but what I would say is, um, you know, government historically 
has not necessarily understood emerging technologies or anything that's sort of ahead of the mainstream. So the thought of government coming in to regulate it now is semi-terrifying to me personally, even though I don't have anything to gain or lose by the government getting involved. Um, but um, I just, I don't know that we know enough about it to, for, you know, to get to that point where we start thinking about how the government should regulate it. But to your point though, about, you know, like the drug trafficking and the dark web sorts of behavior that are starting to creep in, it, it's, it's sort of inevitable that because yeah. of that you're eventually going to have some sort of government involvement and in, in regulation. Um, we we also talked a few weeks ago on this show. I believe it was on the show. Um, if not, it was in one of my YouTube videos. I was talking about how the enterprise technology space is not regulated, and that's been around forever. But yeah. you know, not as conducive to criminal behavior. But um, in some ways you could argue that some of it is criminal behavior in the fact that so many transformations fail and that sort of thing. And it's, to me, it's just, it almost seems like it's just a matter of time before the government somehow starts regulating enterprise technology deployments and things like that. That to me would make a lot more sense because it's a mature established industry that has had significant problems and failures and overspending and, you know, fraudulent behavior at times in the B2B space. That would make more sense to me to have government and it's been going on for decades now versus the metaverse, which we're all trying to figure out what it is and how it's going to evolve. We don't really know what it's going to be, so it's hard to regulate. So I don't know. I guess I, that's why I'm giving you kind of two answers. It, yeah. I if I were the government, which I don't think I ever will be, um, <laughs> but if I were part of the government, I would say that, um, you know, I'd focus on on the lower hanging fruit and the more mature technologies. But that's just me. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an, an interesting dynamic as the government typically just as an entity is slow to adopt, right? And we are now in a technology revolution when we talk about things like Industry 4.0 or as you and Walker pointed out, Industry 5.0 um, and what that looks like. It's interesting to see how regulations will actually keep up with that innovation. I mean, I think the personification for me of this argument is when Mark Zuckerberg, who is the CEO of Meta, right, formerly Facebook, was testifying um, before U.S. Congress. And one of the senators asked, well, how can you read the text messages on my phone? And he, and Mark Zuckerberg said, that's not at all what Facebook is. I have no idea what text messages are on your phone. <laughs> so right. that kind of just showcases that need for that understanding uh, from like a, a socio society view, right? Um, from a business view, I think it's an interesting argument. We had um, a few cybersecurity clips and experts on. It's kind of interesting now that you do actually have to include employee hacking in your cybersecurity, like layering in that strategy. So when you look at how do you put up those guardrails, cybersecurity internal threats need to be, you know, something that you consider as well. So, you know, a lot of different ways you can take this conversation. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And having those right controls in place. And, you know, I think the better job that um, the industry and or users and uh, suppliers of metaverse sorts of activity, the better they do self-regulating. I mean, the better, mm -hmm. the less likely it is the government is going to have to get involved. But if you continue to see dark web type stuff, then of course the government at some point is going to step in and, and crack down on it. So um, so I don't have a good answer for that. I, I think I don't think I ever really answer, answered your question, which is essentially I don't know. I don't know what the right yeah. <laughs> uh, government framework. Yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of people think that you know, obviously 
they want um, new technology to be safe and secure. But as my son says, the bad guys um, will always come in there at some point. And it's just a, a, a thought of, you know, what is that impact on the overall consumer or the business? So yeah. we'll continue to, I'm sure, go down that journey. But um, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about the great resignation. As we've seen kind of in this trend of employee-driven workforce, right? Uh, people leaving their jobs with the COVID-19 pandemic and not going back to work. A lot of that in a new study, as we do see people, this kind of slowing down and needing to go back to jobs. Um, we, I looked at a study that actually uh, it was by Women Unlimited, and it was a jobless survey of about 20,000 job seekers globally. And it said nearly a third, so 30% of people quit their previous job because of bad management. Mm -hmm. And instead of pushing employees to quit their job, it actually gives them a toolkit to be able to have that conversation with their manager to say that, uh, you know, how do we work together? And to flip the perspective about that manager might not have ever had anyone teach them how to manage employees or how to manage change through any sort of transformation, whether it's new policies and procedures, new technology, um, whatnot, and, and really coaching up to say, how do you understand that your manager might not intentionally be creating a bad experience, but being able to address that? Um, and I wanted to get your feedback on that as a change management expert and kind of dig into if you do have a bad manager, a, you know, a senior manager, a middle manager, how would you recommend to an employee that likes the organization, that is a culture match, to address working in more of a, a toxic subculture of the organization? Well, I think the first thing I would do is, is recognize that you, you are part of just a subculture and that the broader, bigger picture is presumably not as bad or it's more aligned with what you're looking for. So that's the good news or the silver lining in the whole thing. So the, the question then becomes a little bit uh, you know, more of a, a shorter term solution of how to navigate around the, the subculture you might be stuck in. So I think the first thing, you know, there's a couple options. I don't know what the priority would be. I guess, I suppose it depends on the situation and the personality of the person involved, but you know, your options are essentially you could, um, you know, try to work your way into other parts of the organization or to another part of the organization that isn't uh, as toxic or that better reflects the overall culture. Um, that's that's one option. That's obviously you know easier said than done, and it's going to be easier in some some situations than others. But that that is one option. Um, the other is to um, you know I think just having the conversations with with management. You're you know starting with your immediate supervisor, which may be the source mm -hmm. of toxicity. Um, but you know having that conversation might help in terms of just just um, maybe calling it out not on a personal level that the person is the problem necessarily. Right. Uh, if you're not comfortable doing that, which I don't think most people would be comfortable doing that, um, but you could call it out as more of a, hey, you know, this is more of a, here's what I'm looking for. Uh, here's the type of environment I want to be in. And I feel like, you know, in this other part of the organization, I might be a better fit. Um, so that, that sort of conversation, again, it's, it's always easier said than done, but those are a couple, a couple ways to, to navigate, potentially navigate that situation. Absolutely. And I, I think it it's something to be said that having hard conversations in a professional environment is a, a skill that's important to learn, especially for transformation leaders. 
um, for project managers, for being able to kind of bring people together that are completely different experiences throughout the business, but still need to interact with the same system or align on the same strategies. Having those conversations of how do we best work together? What is your experience? Because mine isn't incredibly positive and I'd like to come together and figure out how we can make that more collaborative. So I, I think there's something to be said to learning that top track as an employee. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Another hot topic here as we switch from responsible managers to responsible AI. Um, recently, Microsoft had um, launched this concept. It was actually their um, Azure side that um, launched the concept of responsible AI. Uh, and basically what it is, and Ridwan, I know you were, and Ridwan will talk about this a little bit later, is enhancing the technology to make it as actionable as possible. Um, so less technical, and that's their definition of responsibility, is consuming it for the organization and creating the most actionable strategies from that. So I just wanted to share an example to get your feedback on. So the largest national health services in the UK is exploring how AI will reduce wait times, support recommendations from healthcare teams, and provide patients with better information so they can have more informed decisions about their own care. So what their case study was, is they took two orthopedic surgeons that developed an AI model to help consultants give their patients a personalized risk assessment of upcoming hip or knee um, operations. So basically, this is from Azure's cloud. Um, it's the responsible dashboard and their machine learning. So they can see how the model works in real time and get a clear understanding of the most effective conclusion. So mm -hmm. with that kind of example and that um, idea of responsible, I would almost call it like more like unique AI than responsible, because to me that kind of means something different. But I guess right. the most actionable AI, uh, especially in healthcare and the more diagnostic process. So do you feel like that is a huge trend that we'll see specifically within the medical industry is a more personalized care enhanced by technology? I do. And I think it's it's an area that is ripe for AI adoption, primarily mm -hmm. because, as you mentioned, it's it's uh you know, oftentimes a matter of life and death, uh, and, and certainly your health is, is very important to all of us. So, you know, the stakes are higher. So that's, that's one thing that would point to potential AI, but also I think the medical field in general, it's just so broad and so complicated, mm -hmm. continuously evolving that no one person uh, could be, or can really effectively be a, a broad-based general practitioner that really understands all aspects of science and medicine. Um, in fact, the industry is built around experts that specialize in certain uh, areas, and that creates sort of a siloed industry where, you know, if I've got a, just as an example, I have, I speaking of knees, I have bad knees genetically, and um, so I, I will need my knees replaced at some point, but they've been telling me since I was about 40, since right when I turned 40, they've been trying to convince me, they, they being the uh, orthopedic types of doctors mm -hmm. have been trying to convince me to get a knee replacement because I'm going to need it someday. Just do it now. And my view has been, well, but there's other options. So I've talked to other 
you know, I've gone to other specialists that say, well, you can extend the life of your current knees by stretching them and exercising them and mm-hmm. making them stronger. And so that's what I focused on. But that's just an example of how there's sort of a, a breakdown, a disciplinary breakdown mm-hmm. between two different areas of specialization. And if we had AI that had actual data that could analyze and make meaning and look at my genetic background and look at, you know, my current situation and compare it to other people and, you know, really look at results and analyze mass amounts of data that no one person could do on their own. Um, I think that's, you know, super ripe for, for AI and and where AI is, is a best fit is where you have tons of data that need to Mm -hmm. be processed and you have human, uh, blind spots or, uh, capacity issues to, to process that data. I think AI can be a, a good replacement or augmentation of that, uh, sort of special, uh, specialized medicine aspect of, of most healthcare systems throughout the world. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great, great way to, not a great way to start, but I, I see that field, that industry, the healthcare industry being a, a good catalyst for AI. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think it has many different levels, right? We might look at something like orthopedic surgery or maybe emerging healthcare markets to where there needs to be disease prevention via data and understanding what that life cycle looks like. So I think you're right. There's just so many avenues to leverage AI um, within the healthcare profession. And um, maybe I'm just a huge nerd, but I think that um, healthcare in the last two years has been one of the most interesting industries to watch with technology just because of not only obviously the forced transformation um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also just the the um, ability of that change management for these doctors to embrace something like AI within their diagnostic process, which we know most of the time is, is very analytical and has very little room for new processes. But I think the the doctors and the physicians and the, you know, healthcare professionals that embrace that ability to look at these new frontiers of technology will really have that opportunity to create greater relationships with their patients, both near and far. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's, it's fascinating. I'm, I love hearing, uh, hearing these stories and I look forward to seeing how that technology evolves in that field and, and other fields too, but, but healthcare is okay. particularly fascinating. Sure. Absolutely. And, and, Speaking of fascinating, you obviously have heard of the lakes versus warehouse data um, overall conceptual argument, but this was my actual first um, experience with that. So it's it's something I'm excited to talk to you about. So I found a case study that looked at two different data companies. Basically, um, they took a completely different approach to data management. So the companies are called Databricks and Snowflake. And basically, Databricks is built by academics, so a former professor, and they've really focused on enhancing the overall technology of their product. And Snowflake has taken a a bit of a different approach in um, its core strength is industry partnerships. So looking at things like Amazon sales channels, cloud data for retail industries, healthcare industries that we're just talking about, and that overall integration. Um, so what that kind of brings us to our, our um, lakes versus warehouse. So basically um, what we've looked at is that Snowflake is more like um, 
uh, um, no, sorry, Databricks is more like a data lake where you can, you know, dump all of your data in and it's run by those researchers who are, are really good at taking that information, putting it in the system and creating obviously that actual data or, or that overall just storage within that bigger area versus Snowflake, which their structure is an actual data warehouse um, and that has a bit more structure in it a lot of times because that has to be integrated with other retail platforms, that type of thing. Um, so there's this other third <laughs> evolution, which I, I kind of just find hilarious that we're, you know, we're going from lakes to warehouses. Now we're going to the lake house. And that's okay. what I really want to talk to you about today. So basically these data cloud lakes and warehouses, because they are critical elements in enterprise data management, they've kind of come together, if you will, to create a hybrid of the warehouse structure and the data lake storage opportunity. Um, and then again, that's kind of how you generate those useful business insights or data. Um, so I wanted to get obviously your feedback on this new concept of lake house the only lake house i ever knew was a literal house on a lake and now we've gone you know really figuratively hard in the data world um but most importantly in all seriousness i'm i'm wondering your opinion on um the hybrid model of that bigger storage now and that more structured insight approach do you think that there is an opportunity for those to kind of meet in the middle while keeping the structured industry partnerships integration but also having the opportunity to get your data in a secure location as quickly as possible. Well, I'd, I'd say that, first of all, I don't know who has time to think of this stuff. Uh, there's, there's someone out there that's, that's really thinking, like it. Yeah. yeah. Like if someone out there had to think of these terms, data lake, data warehouse, data and, and now house, lake house. Um, and I, I guess I don't, I, I, I have, one of my weaknesses as a digital transformation consultant is I, I have trouble keeping up with, nor do I really care a whole lot about what a label is, you know, what sort of label you put on something. Yeah. And to me, it's just, I look at more at what does it do? What does that labeled product or service do and how does it fit my fit a business or not? Um, so I guess I'd say, I think it, it sounds like there's an opportunity there for sure to sort of find that balance or that middle ground or whatever you want to call it. Whether or not it deserves its own category, I, I don't know or, or care. I'll leave that up to to Gartner and Forrester and some of those analyst firms that create buzzwords for a living. Um, and you know, I love buzzwords. We've covered this. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've we've alluded to that. If you if this is your first time watching, you'll have to go back to other episodes because I repeatedly say how much I love buzzwords in a very sarcastic or facetious sort of a way. Um, but yeah, I think it's a you know, it's just a. I think it's, if anything, it points to the advent of or the evolution of business intelligence and data processing. Mm -hmm. We were talking about AI before. I think it points to a bigger picture and a bigger trend, which is data is really important and data is becoming a, a currency. It's becoming an asset that, that organizations mm -hmm. can really find value in. And this is just a third way now that, that they can do so. Absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting that even though this is a more of an emerging industry, right? Data has always been important even, you know, before um, technology integration has come heavily into the marketplace, but it's that, that time old argument of product focus versus customer focus to me is what this right. kind of boils down to is you have two 
data companies that have taken a product-focused approach or a customer-focused approach. So I think that's the, the one thing that is really the argument here is, is which one is going to work better. Yeah. Yeah. And it, in identifying what your needs are and what is you're trying to accomplish, what your current data situation is and um, how you collect data, what systems you're using, all that stuff influences or should influence which of these three options make the most sense for you. Absolutely. Well, speaking of buzzwords, if you like buzzwords, stay tuned because talking to Ridwan, he used to work for Gardner, just so you know, but also a, a great insight. My buzzword meter was just off the charts in this conversation. I was so happy. I was gleeful. My kids during breakfast time were like, what's wrong with you? Um, but it was such a great conversation, not only for the, the buzzwords for my own entertainment, but also uh, great insights. This honestly was one of my favorite interviews because I think it really hones in on what is a CIO or what does a technology leader mean and how does that influence the overall impact of the organization? Yeah, what are the skills that are underrated as a, as a technology leader? Um, what are some ways to develop your skills? Um, you know, we talk, we'll get into culture. You know, we talk about culture and, and how you can create a, a culture of digital and technology and transformation, all that stuff. And that was part of why I brought up Gardner because I knew he was going to be on the show and he he used to work at Gardner. So that's part of why I was sort of poking fun at Gardner and yeah. all the time he's been coming up with, with buzzwords. Um, so it'll be good to have Ridwan on the show. Uh, this is the first time he's been on this podcast. In fact, uh, this conversation uh, is a great one. In fact, uh, if we hadn't just done our top 10 interviews of mm -hmm. 2020 so far, which if uh, you haven't listened, that's last week's episode, episode number 71. Uh, be sure to check that out. We have the top 10 uh, interview clips from 2022 so far. But uh, this interview, I suspect, might make the list uh, if we were to do that that list again. Um, but anyway, uh, having said that, you can the good news is you can listen to it now. And uh, we're going to we're going to have Ridwan on the show to to chat through some of these topics uh, related to the role of CIOs and and how they can add to business value and how their roles are evolving uh, now in the 2020. So we'll have Ridwan uh, Bardian on the show. Uh, he's from Third Stage Africa out of uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, in our office based there in Africa. So we'll have him on the show when we come back. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, 
and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And we're constantly adding to our network of podcast carriers that, that offer the show. So be sure to check us out wherever you listen. But at the very least, I know you can find us on Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, Google Podcasts, et cetera. All the, all the big guys, you can, you can find us there for sure. So uh, our next guest, I'm excited for our first time guest, Ridwan Bardian, who is managing director at Third Stage Africa, our office in Third Stage Africa, and he is based in Johannesburg, South Africa. And he's going to be on the show here today talking about the role of CIOs and chief digital officers, as well as how those roles are evolving and changing, what you need to do to, to succeed as a CIO or CDO, and also how those roles are adding increasing business value to organizations throughout the world. So all that being said, Ridwan, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Eric. So just Good to start, to be maybe before I dive into the, the questions here today, uh, if you could just share a little bit about your background and what you've done throughout your career, sort of a summary view, as well as what you do here at Third Stage. Sure. Uh, thanks, Eric. Um, so I'm a director at uh, Third Stage um, Africa, and I'm, I'm based in Johannesburg, originally from Cape Town. And it's uh, kind of like a joke here because Cape Town has seemed to be a nicer part of uh, South Africa than Johannesburg. So people are always surprised that I'm here. But I'm saying I'm, I like being here because it's where, where all the action is. Um, so a little bit about myself. Yeah. So uh, like I said, from Cape Town, I actually started at the bottom of IT, worked my way all the way up from business analyst, I did project management, uh, systems implementation, um, all the way up to CIO level. And then just prior to joining um, Third Stage Africa, I was an executive partner at Gartner. And I spent five years there talking to, um, and, and also just prior to that being a CIO. So I spent about five years talking to chief information officers. I saw the rise of the chief digital officer, this chief integration officer. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so I've, I've, I've not watched this from afar or, or actually read about it in an academic, academic sense. I actually experienced a lot of this. So I'm, I'm hoping to bring a lot of that um, experience and, uh, yeah, just um, some clarity maybe on the way forward in terms of the role. So yeah. once again, thank, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here today especially late in the day, uh, your time. We appreciate you, you joining. Um, I guess just to start, you know, we want to dive into the, the specific roles of the CIO and what some of the emerging trends are and how they can best add value to an organization. But before we go there, uh, maybe just to give us an overview, sort of that high-level flyover view of what, what is a CIO? What is a CIO's role and responsibility? How do they fit into an organization? So um, the thing about the CIO role, uh, it's a kind of a bit difficult to talk about it generically. So let me talk about where it started and, and where it is now and the different forms and shapes that it, that it has. So I think it started around about in the 1980s where, and, and traditionally they started reporting to the CFO because um, that's where the big the systems were, the ERP system, financial systems of record. So they kind of started out in that space. And then over the years, we've seen the role morph and change to become more of a business executive, like to become, to, to be actually be a member of Exco, to the point where actually going and um, asking for funding and things at, at board level. So becoming like a true executive in the organization. I think it would be a, a bit of a disservice to, to, to to put all CIOs in that in that in that label, because if you look at some of the, especially in Africa, and if we look in the, the SME market, and that some of them are still reporting to the the CFO, and they might have a role of head of IT. So the traditional role was looking at the back office processes, 
you know, systems of record, making sure that, that everything thing works. But I think the role has morphed now. So, and I've seen this before the pandemic and the pandemic actually just accelerated it. It is more about revenue now. It's about driving costs. It's about bringing operational efficiency. And so digital transformation has moved from just um, uh, digital uh, optimization. In other words, keeping your the lights on, making sure things are efficient, uh, lowering your risks of doing business to creating new business models and giving in, input into that and, and then looking at new revenue streams. And I think that's an uncomfortable shift. And, 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 I, and I, I see that, you know, in third stage Africa, working with CIOs and my time at Gartner, it is not a natural shift for a lot of the CIOs. Because if you take someone like myself, I came, my background was actually almost in like an engineering, like a technical person. I was fortunate in that I was mentored by chartered accountants. So that was quite weird. But And I ended up doing a national diploma in cost accounting. So, so I always had that affinity for business. So for me, it was a little bit easier to make the transition. And all of those things came into play. Like when you go into the boardroom, like talking about budgets and business and things like and I, i'll give you an example like when i was at uh, south african national blood services one time i thought let me do something altruistic in my career so it's very complex though it wasn't it's not as it's a different model from the american model where you just you have one part of the business that collects the blood then then it gets given to um, another organization that maybe you know see if the, if the if the blood is clean and 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 things like that at south african national blood services it was from the beginning to the end so it very very complex and i remember sitting with microsoft one day as a cio and this was about f five six years ago and i said to them what do you think my job is and microsoft said to me you know it's you know it's to make sure that the systems are running there's uptime and then and, and my answer to them was, and they all just went quiet. I said, my job is to save lives. And then that's how I looked at my IT department. And that's how I, and it, it was interesting then. To, and then they started giving me more parts of the business. And then I was actually groomed to become the CEO. So that's what I've, I've seen. And, and I do a lot of coaching and mentoring with CIO. So I think it's important that you need to understand your role is no longer about that IT and, and something I did that shook up my department one day is so I just joined. I was there about a month. I stood in, it was about 100, 200 people. And I said, this organization can outsource from me to all of you. Mm. <laughs> it's like, what? What? And I needed to get the attention. I said, now we need to shift and, and help the business. And some instance even run, run ahead of the business. So I've seen the pandemic. It's also, it's now... Um, it's accelerated this, right? Um, what I've seen and, 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 and here's what I've, I've noticed is because if you look at our back, backgrounds, um, you know, coming through IT, we have this thing called, I used to call it urgency addiction. So when things go wrong, we're very good at it. So I said, I would either be in IT or I'd be a fireman. <laughs> you know, right. people running this way, we run that way. You're like, oh, we get excited when things are not working. So I think the pandemic was fantastic, right? But here's was interesting, like, it, it's fantastic in that, yes, there was this urgency addiction. And globally, I mean, I don't think there was one company that made the front news that couldn't do the transition. So hats off to the guys who are doing that. But it doesn't stop there. And that's what I've seen. Now, they seem like, oh, we've, we've done this. So we're fantastic. We can now relax. Everybody's doing remote work. No, mm. you need to realize that now you need to, to capitalize on this. Um, so let me stop there. I've, I've 
I think you can see I'm very passionate about this topic. But the trend is, yeah, starting in the back office, but you are now more front-facing. Does it apply to all CIOs? Some guys on the call might be going, hey, but hang on, I'm still reporting to the CFO. Yes, we still have that. But if you look at the big players, the the the, the global players, thing that the CIOs, if you talk to them now, they sound more like business people. Yeah, and it, it, it sounds like from what you're saying, that, that shift from – CFO, where perhaps the focus was on cost containment and, and protecting assets, um, it seems like it has evolved from that into more of a competitive differentiator, less of a commodity where you just have to control costs and make sure things work and that the lights stay on. But now you're you're shifting that focus to, quote unquote, saving lives in the case of your experience or whatever the broader goals and objectives are of the organization. So it's interesting to see how that role has evolved and where the, how the CIO role has become more integrated into the overall strategy of the organization. Do you think that's because Correct. technology is viewed differently in that context of, of competitive differentiator and competitive advantage versus just a necessary evil that you've got to contain cost on? I, I think so. So so it's coming from board level, right? So um, here's my experience. So I've seen this over the years. So boards started putting pressure on their CIOs to play this role. What, what I saw happened in, 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 in Africa particularly is then they brought the CDO on, Chief Digital Officer. The Chief Digital Officers that they brought on were more from a marketing sort of background. So they were putting mm -hmm. the focus there, like digital channels, things like that. When I looked at that, and I, and I wasn't working for Gartner at the time, and I challenged them and I said, they said this role is going to evolve. And I, and I said, it's not going to. And the reason I said it was from my perspective. Remember, I'm a CIO with the, with the army behind me. You bringing a CDO, it never happened to me, but this is what I saw. You bringing a CDO who doesn't have that and now expecting them to perform. They need to do all mm -hmm. of these things, right? But I said it's not going to work. And in Africa, we've seen that um, not now, but back, say, five, six years ago. Then that CDOs, they got kicked out, right? So the CIO was like, okay, keep in that space but what's accelerated it now and brought the cdo role back and i mean we we see that a lot now um is that it's easier to, those things are commoditized now the cloud mm. i mean using ai using so you can bring a cdo on board and you can say to them and i've worked with a very large financial institution that's actually done that they said to the cios of of, of all the different divisions not that you just put it delicately, you're old school. This is not going right. to work. And then this CDO that they brought on board didn't need them. So mm -hmm. my story is no longer valid. You don't need that CIO, the general with the arm. You can now sign up, spin up a, a, a cloud service if you need to. You can get all of these things that you need. It's less about the tech and what you can do with it, with the tech. So we've seen, we've seen that. The other interesting yeah. thing that I've, I've seen also is that that CIOs are coming from business backgrounds. I've, I've seen one where the guy was a lawyer before, is a CIO now. So interesting hmm. that, that that thing. But I think it's a natural progression. It makes sense that that is happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're here talking to Ridwan about the role of CIOs in the 2020s. We're going to continue the conversation when we return after a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If 
you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. We're here with Ridwan out of the Third Stage South Africa office, and we're here talking about the role of CIOs in the 2020s. One question I have that I want to pull from the audience here, um, let me find it here, is what is the difference between um, a chief uh, information officer, CIO, and a chief digital officer, uh, CDO? So you were starting to talk about a CD, CDO. Yeah. Um, how, how would you sort of summarize those differences so, between those two roles? So if you think of it in terms of an, uh, let's, let's look at IT like an, like an operating model, like a business. So if you have both in the, in an organization, cause it depends, I don't think we should get so caught up in the names, but I'll explain the difference quickly. Let's say you have a CIO and a CDO in an organization, then that question is very relevant, right? So if you look at IT as a, as a purely like a, like a business, then the CIO is almost like the COO, mm. if that makes sense. So they look after the back office. They make sure things are the, is the innovation that comes here. Yes, obviously, you know, this new technology. Um, it's not just about technology refresh and things like that. So there is innovation, but it's on the existing business. So you can still mm -hmm. increase productivity or increase your margins, you know, by uh, um, bringing in business process, re-engineering, upgrading your ERP system, do, doing those things. So it's more back back end focused. The chief digital officer will be then almost like the CEO. So they more revenue. They chase revenue. So they're reporting lines to the to 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 the to the board, and because the board is very very interested in that in that role, would be about what are the rev what 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 other business models are you looking at what what so i'll give you an, ex an example of this large financial i can't unfortunately mention the name so you have this large financial institution who has a cdo they've got different groups and clusters who have who've got cio so they focus on traditional business her job and what i worked with was, was almost like spinning up a fintech so she's gone out and she's starting to work with all these other different uh, um, smaller companies, you know, that's more nimble IT companies. Their main focus is to change the business model and, and find alternative revenue streams or mm. increase the, the existing ones. That's the major, major difference between the two. But I don't want to do the CIO a disservice because in some organizations, the CIO is stepped up and playing the role of a CDO. They've realized mm. if I don't do this, I'm going to be replaced or I'm going to get CDOs going to come. So they have started to do that. But uh, but if you have both in an organization, I hope that gives some clarity between the two. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, there's two things happening here and, and they, they're sort of dovetailing. One is the evolution of the CIO role into that more strategic partnership revenue driving role. The other one being that the chief digital officer, you know, the the advent of the CDO role 
has sort of pushed organizations further in that direction. I know a lot of clients we work with, you have a call it old school to use your words. And I agree with those words, yeah. by the way, you have sort of an old school <laughs> CIO that's already in place and they're really good at the brick fix type stuff, you know, making sure that mm. you're supporting the current systems, you're uh, improving the current systems, you're fixing stuff when it breaks, you're doing customization requests, all that stuff to sort of maintaining and preserving the systems. But that same person oftentimes doesn't have the skill set or the capability to be able to do the more innovative strategic thinking, more use of technology as a strategic enabler. How do you, have you seen CIOs struggle with that evolution? And if so, what, what can they do to kind of overcome that, that difference? So, so we have seen them do, so, so a lot of them have come from like the traditional and there's no fault of their own, right? That's just the way it was. You would become a CIO because you had a strong background in IT, for example. So like I was a, you know, did a senior business analyst and then I became a CIO, but I was a senior business analyst in IT. So that was the natural progression to get there. But what I learned very, very, very quickly, and I was fortunate to work in my first job as a CIO, I had a CEO who told me this one day, and I'll never forget when I came, I was presenting in the room and and he called me aside. He said, Riran, you don't always have to come to these meetings and be the expert on the particular topic that you're talking about. Mm. So I was like, what? <laughs> so that's not what we do, right? So we the we the experts, we the we we must know everything as a C, as a CIO. And then I realized it's about leadership. It is actually about leadership. So mm. we have seen, so I'll give you examples of we have seen the guys who make this transition are those who are good leaders. So they went, okay, I don't need to know. I need to know enough about it, like become like a generalist again, know enough about everything. But I need to then go and say, right, we need to move the business forward. I need to speak more like a business person. I need to do, you know, things like I find the guys who struggle who, who come, let's say they come from a very, very, very strong technical background. It, it's hard for them to move away. I've mm-hmm. seen this in, in, in even in organizations with CEOs. And, I, and I'll never forget I was busy working with an organization. Uh, and this will maybe make sense. So they started, uh, they started the company and they were database administrators. And I was working with him, contracting, you know, working with him and his team, you know, making the change, you know, digital transformation. And I was in his office one day and he was very upset about something. And I said, what's, what's up? And he's like, you said, you know, these guys here, when they struggle with the, with the, with the, with the database and they don't know how to, they don't come and ask me for help. I was like, right. no, it's not about that anymore. You need to, you just need to be the leader. Like, what's up? What's how can I guide? So I think the guys who are able to pivot to becoming leaders, focus more on their leaders, understand the business more, make the transition easier. I think if your natural inc- inclination is to tinker and change, and I think you're going to struggle in this one. Mm. Is it possible to change? Yes, I would say maybe get an executive coach, spend more time with your C-level suite, you know, understand, emu- emulate, like I started to emulate that CEO because he was the first one to tell me something like that. So I, that's, what, that's what I did. I, I hope that answers, I came in a bit of a roundabout way, but it's essentially yeah. it's about leadership. If that's what you you need to make that transition and know that it's okay not to know. If if I can yeah. use this one more example, for example, so as you can see by the gray, I'm not a youngster, so I'm not on all social media platforms, but we we had um let's take the South African National Blood Service as an example. So we had an aging donor base. So we wanted to reach out to the younger. 
So I brought somebody on board who was 20-something, and I brought this individual to come and present at board level. And I and I got up, I introduced, I said, I, this is not my area. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not doing all of this. I'm on LinkedIn, yes, because I'm more of a professional. She's going to give a presentation of what these 20-year-olds are doing. So you need to know, you need to have this vulnerability that, because you know when, you, when you're in IT and you're coming to the rank, you're the expert in the room and you must know everything. You right. need to have this vulnerability now and go, hey, I don't know everything, but I'm leading. I'm not saying you're throwing your hands up. I don't know. I'm, I'm leaving the room. Right. I'm guiding us to get to not uh, to the younger uh, um, donors. So I'm going to bring this youngster in. So I think if, if, if you, you need to, uh, yeah, bottom line is you need to be a leader. That's yeah. what it is. That's well put. I, yeah. I, I agree with that. And I think that vulnerability and maybe even going deeper than that and just that, that, seeking to understand you know you're, you're trying to understand the business needs you're trying to understand the business drivers you're trying to understand the pain points that the business has and the ways technology might be able to solve it i think that open-mindedness and that curiosity and that digging and curiosity really important mm. did you just yeah. out of curiosity when you were a gardener did you spend a fair amount of time coaching cios through this sort of transition the, the transition of the role and helping them just understand yep. and embrace that yeah. So there was two two parts to the role. Obviously, as executive part, we do a whole lot of different things, but I'll focus on this the coaching and mentoring. With the more seasoned senior CIOs, um, I I was more of a sounding board. So mm. so I was more like, oh, we know you've done this before. What you were thinking? So that's and they loved it because let's be honest, the CIO role, if you've ever done it, and I'd like to see the, from the guys comments. It's one of the most loneliest roles that you can mm -hmm. have. It's the most misunderstood role. And it's one of the most, if you were to see all the blogs and things, it's, it's one of the toughest roles. Where, where the, uh, um, so where I would do the coaching and mentoring, a lot of times the CIOs, because in, in South Africa particularly, we find at the moment the CIO, they're rotating a lot. So they'll end up with an acting CIO, for example. So I actually coached in with one of my clients in, in Africa and Botswana from the acting role to CIO role to the CDO role. And I've mm -hmm. done this with, with that's just one example. But with all of them, I impressed this thing upon, upon them, right? 90% of your time needs to be on the business. Where's the business going? Look at what you can right. start to outsource and things like don't doesn't you don't have to retrench people and think you can reskill and look at other things, but sound more like a business person. Sound more so I've seen this with my own eyes that people then are then become CDOs because they talk more about the business. Yeah. So a lot of the, the, the coaching and mentoring I did was around the soft skills. It wasn't mm -hmm. about, Hey, you, you need to become a better programmer. You, you need to understand right. AI better. Yeah. With Gartner, we do that. We, we, so when I was at Gartner, but a lot of the coaching and mentoring I did was how to become a better business person. And um, so a lot of it was to do with um, um, articulating the business value of IT. So, mm. so a lot of the coaching I did, and, and, and it's extremely important is communication. So they would come with a hundred document and they're going to the board. I'm like, no, come wait, wait, hang on. What's, what, what are your message? What are you trying to do? Because one of the things we, we did at Gartner was the art of storytelling. So what is the story you're trying to tell? Okay, no, 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 put that in business terms. So don't talk about uptime. Talk about the fact that it was up so many, that was the sales, that you, you tie those things together. So change that language. And that language, I, from my own personal experience, I experienced that myself, is that when I started to talk more about business, 
they started to pay more attention to me because I picked up before when I started to talk, they would switch off because it's technical terms, it's technical jargon, that's where we go. So I started to use their technical terms, their technical jargon. So I coached a lot in that space. And I've seen the guys who took to it did really did really well. They ended up going from the acting to actually becoming the CEO. Uh, so I coached them for their CIO interviews as well. I said, speak more business. Don't sound like a techie. That's the worst right. thing you can do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you tend to lose credibility pretty quickly with with the business people when when you speak too techie uh, in that context. Here's an interesting yeah, question yeah. from um, Hilton over on LinkedIn. Um, actually, more of a comment, but I, I want to get your reaction to this, Ridwan. Um, and Hilton says, always amazed that we create new roles, such as CDO, Chief Diversity Officer, and then create exactly the same infrastructure and bureaucracy and expect different results. Yeah. Organizational design and culture are still not enough focus to unleash this. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a really good point in terms of you can't just say, okay, I hear you, Ridwan. We need to create more of a strategic view of IT. So we're going to create this CDO role. We're going to create a chief digital officer role to support our CIO, let's just say. What's the problem mm -hmm. with that or where the pitfalls or how do you, how does that sort of limit your ability to do what you're saying just by creating that role? Are there other things you need to do to create that infrastructure and the general cultural change that needs to go along with that? Correct. So, uh, and it's almost like this, the savior complex, right? Let's create the CDO. Um, let's create the CDO role and they're going to save us. And, and, and right. yeah, so I, I'm laughing big because I see your, your culture of your organization is extremely important because I'll give you an example, even like what, when I was trying to do some stuff, the older guys in my IT department, what? No, we're not going to do that. So I even had clashes there, right? Now, now imagine if you got clashes in your own department, you still got to deal with the whole organization. So, so what I did was, um, first of all, I agree, a title, yes. Some I've, I read a book years ago. There was an organization that got rid of titles. I'm like, oh, yes, fantastic. Just get the job done. So I agree with that. Um what I would also say is, yeah, don't focus too much on the title and that because um, digital transformation is a team sport. It is not one person. It involves the whole of Exco. It involves that senior management layer. You need to get the people involved. So one of the so what I, I was all about, I, I liked that about change management. So I was talking to one of my colleagues earlier who's an expert in change management. So I don't know all the terms, but I think I did it just naturally. So one of the things I did to break down that barrier, to to not have the savior complex, oh, we've got a CDO who's going to is I would, in, I would create what we now call fusion teams, is I would create, say, there's this problem that we need to solve. Then I would open it up to, to all of the business. So you had people from across the business working on this. And it was fantastic. So they weren't paid extra for doing it. They were just excited to do it. But I think it was great for their careers, if you think about it now. I did this six, seven years ago. So some of them probably branched into IT. Um, and they were working after hours. And then, and so it was like a cross-pollination. I used different people. So the thing is, um, and, and this was a discussion I was having with my colleague, is that change management, and I think I'm still answering the question, right? Because they asked about change management. Right. Change management is not something that sits there on the side that you put on the project plan and then you do this. Change management, if you're a leader, it is core to what you do. So irrespective of what your title is to make that change, you have to come, you have to incorporate that in. So that's what I did. I broke down barriers. 
I started to break down this thing like, what do I do? I save lives. I just give you one example. I start to break those things. I don't think we should get so hung up on on these titles because it's mm-hmm. it's constantly changing, and I don't think it's doing anybody any any good. Sorry, that's just a personal pet peeve of mine. These different titles that get the job done, in, yeah, but absolutely. be a leader, get the job done. And yeah. and I think that the traits that you have as a CEO, CDO, CRO, CFO, COO, leadership traits are transferable across all of that. There's certain things that you need to that you have. right. And I think you're I don't know if I answered that. Yeah. And I think you you hit on the point earlier with change management. Um, you know, so many organizations and clients we talk to are going through some sort of transformation, a digital transformation primarily, and the, a lot of the comments we hear is that we're not just looking to put in new technology. We want to create more of a culture of technology and that's the enablement that comes along with that. So I think organizations seem to intuitively start to recognize that it's not just a matter of putting in a CDO role or putting a a new title on the CIO role and calling it chief digital officer and assuming the transformation is going to happen. They recognize it goes deeper. It kind of gets into the fabric and the DNA of the culture of the organization. So if I could just answer something that just came to my mind. So the biggest inhibitor of a digital transformation, the biggest inhibitor is culture. Mm. So yeah. I remember years ago, uh, my stepdaughter, she was 10 at the time and I was a CIO. You know, you come home, you complain about work to your wife. She's just listening. And she said, if you have all this technology out there and, you know, all this technology, because they, they grew up in that, they, they just adopt to take new technology latest iphone and she said if all this technology is out there remember she's 10 years old and she said why are you struggling to put it into organizations i'll never forget that i right. just stopped mid, you know when yes it's, it's culture <laughs> we know. right right yeah how, so, how so you, you <laughs> yeah now you put this lone ranger with a cdo on, on his or her back and you say solve all our problems no it's got it's 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 a team sport you've got to change your culture to, to allow for that it's right. many things coming together to make that. Uh, so, so the 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 other word I used to use, um, and I was talking to my friend about it now. That then he said, "Please don't use that. It sounds like a religion." I said, "I was a digital evangelist." Right. Right. <laughs> so it's like a. It's just it's meant like you, Yeah, you you so you're so passionate about it that it will just happen. It's not the title that's going to make it happen. Right. We're here talking to Ridwan about the role of CIOs in the 2020s. We're going to continue the conversation when we return after a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. We're here with Ridwan out of the Third Stage South Africa office, and we're here talking about the role of CIOs in the 2020s. 
Here's a here's an interesting question from Kevin on YouTube. Um, and he asked the question, can you elaborate on practices and approaches to influence and gain peer buy-in for IT initiatives, such as from sales, finance, et cetera, and working through the political landscape within an organization? It's a pretty big question, pretty broad question, but curious to he yeah. hear if you have any sort of general knee-jerk thoughts to that question. So I'll give you an example, maybe like when I join an organization, right? So the second time around as a CIO, I learned a lot from my first time. Um, so obviously to break down those barriers and things like that, the silos exist in all organizations. So, and even in the interview process, they would say like, what would you do in your first 30 days, 60 days? Uh, listen, that's what I would do. So you don't come in as the expert. So what I did is I took a, my notepad and I set up a meeting with all the executives, all the senior managers. And I went to each one of them and I said, talk to me. What are your pain points? So I started off with, like they would say, what was wrong with IT? So even if it's like when we order a laptop, it takes 14 days. That is very crucial because, um, and I always said this, like we've had board meetings, for example. If I go to a board meeting and I'm asking for two, three hundred million, and that board member has a laptop that wasn't fixed, I'm going to struggle. I'm dealing mm -hmm. with human beings. It's a very simple thing. So right. I, I would do, do simple things. So I would go to them and then all I would do is I wouldn't say, I'm here. I know the ones. Tell me what the issues are. And I would make notes and then, and then I would address that issue. Then it would make sure, okay, guys, we need to look at the help this. I would, but I would bundle it together. Oh, I didn't go, um, I'm not, I hope I'm not getting the wrong, but I didn't go and said, okay, you must fix this. You must fix it. I looked at it holistically, right? This is what we need to do. So I shifted IT to that they became a partner because most right. organizations, uh, there was years ago that CIOs, what they used to call them, either career, career is over. And I always believe it's because we were known also as Dr. No. People remember that you said you just said no to everything. No, 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 you can't have that. So the first thing was to change the IT organization to become more of a partner, work with them, listen to them, understand what it is. Other things I did, for example, I knew the board was very influential. So and they always they would always come to the meetings with a problem. Okay, the 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 board back the so what I did is on I would see when the meetings were. And then I would outside the, the, let's say there was a boardroom outside that I would have a guy with a, I would say I had to help this and I had a guy sitting there and then somebody mm -hmm. would come and then it's, it's, I've got this problem. They'd sort it out this because, because maybe on that day I was going to come in and ask for some money. So I made sure. So I think it's, 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 you know, we're human beings. We should listen to each other. So we shouldn't forget that. It's not about being the expert to win them over. Go there and just listen to them. Listen 80% of that conversation and, and checking. And then going back and then addressing those issues. That's how I won them over. The second way is that I spoke. Then I made a note of the words that they use. What is it they use? And then I would use their language back to them. In the boardroom, at Exco, things like that. Bit of a short answer. I don't know if that answer the question but yeah it's yeah, uh yeah it's it's, it's 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 you know creating it's about creating relationships like anything in in life yeah you know yeah absolutely creating that yeah and a lot of what you're saying here is is stimulating a response from the audience here i want to just cover a couple comments and and, and uh sort of elaborating a little bit on some of your points uh, so far ridwan um, Gus over on LinkedIn says, for me, I would say a chief digital officer would focus more on looking at all the processes and convert them to digital or analog digital and eliminate analog dashboards. So um, that's an interesting take on, on what a CIO role could be. 
Um, Kyler from LinkedIn says, I think it's so powerful when a leader says, I don't know, because to normalize that vulnerability for employees. So I think that's a, a great point there. Um, and there's another comment here. Um, this is an interesting one that I wanted to dive into here for a second. This is from Ryan over on LinkedIn. He says, my former position as COO also encompassed the role of CIO when I was in a manufacturing environment. And I don't know about you, Ridwan, but I've, some of the best CIOs I've worked with were the ones that really understood the business. I mean, they could they could understand that all the nuances of how the business worked and where the warts were and what the strengths were, sort of what the competitive advantage of the organization was. And they didn't know, some of the best ones I've worked with didn't know a lot about <coughs> technology. They weren't up to date on all the latest and greatest technologies, but they really understood the business and they could lead with that business view that then sort of translated into, okay, now let's figure out what technology is going to best enable uh, that. But what are your thoughts on that, um, you know, that sort of COO mindset within the CIO role? No, it makes a lot of sense because what I was going to talk about is where is the CIO role going? And one of the roles I see is COO or CEO. Maybe CEO we've seen here and there, maybe not quite, but the COO seems a more natural fit. That's where we, see, we I see that going. So the fact that the COO was also the CEO, yes, we've actually seen some of these positions advertised now in South Africa. It says COO slash CIO. It's it's actually because what is operations today? It's all actually digital, isn't it? It's, it's all automated. So to be a good COO, you you need to kind of wear two hats. I see. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Hilton over on LinkedIn has a comment. Uh, kudos for the comment on leadership. It is always about culture and recognizing the opportunity to be the culture catalyst. Sadly, some cultures will not endorse curiosity, vulnerability, and a questioning orientation. It's a great point. Yeah. If you have that kind of culture that's not open to questioning the status quo or really thinking outside the box, again, back to that point earlier, you can create all the titles all the roles you want but it's not going to be effective unless you you also look to change the culture and the, the dna of the organization i think that's a great hundred percent and 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 so what we see in happening like with this big financial organization that i worked with they it's not just it that's old school it's the organization because remember they've been some of them are 100 years plus i'm not saying the people there have been there from the beginning but that culture it perpetuates itself so it's like a it's like this culture that you just know can't change. So what we see is that, and it's intends not to be, it's, it's not very risk, it's like a risk averse. So what we see is like, they're almost like a CDO coming in and then starting a startup. Like a lot of these big organizations we see here in Africa is like these smaller companies are starting up. We see that, so one of the biggest, interestingly with, with all our financial services and everything that's happening on our continent, the biggest investment in in africa is into fintechs or startups they don't have those issues of cultures it's a 10-man thing hey this thing doesn't work let's just let's just change this so i, I think that uh, um yeah if you're struggling with the culture the best thing you can do is to spin a startup that's what I, some of them it's just yeah my experience is i don't know how this culture is going to change yeah right yeah it's it's easier said than done and and you really need the whole executive team's buy-in in order for that to happen um, the CIO or chief digital officer alone is not going to change that culture. You need that alignment at the top and that uh, consensus and that sort of focus at the executive level on down that we are going to change this culture. And um, if you're if you're in a CIO role, uh, how about this as a question as a follow up to that, though, Ridwan, if you're being 
asked to take on a CIO or CDO role within an organization, let's just say you're looking for a new job and you're considering going to this new company in a CIO or CDO role, but the culture doesn't feel right or it doesn't feel like the, the culture is going to support that. What do you do? Do you go ahead and take the role and assume that you're going to fight the battle and you're going to be able to change the culture? Or do you sort of wait for that opportunity where you know the executive team's on board and aligned and focused on changing that culture? So a lot of my questions will be like, for those types of roles, nowadays you'll have a board member in there or you'd have uh, you know somebody from Exco, not, not just the CEO. So I would ask these questions up front, definitely. Like, what is the appetite for this? What, how are we going you know, to do this? And you, you can get a sense from that. Here's the thing that we find is that there's a lot of lip service in this area. For digital transformation. So I'll give you a stat, for example, um, when I was at Gartner. So a lot of these CEOs would say that they're doing digital transformation. So, so digital transformation is like what we would term changing your, your operating model, finding new revenue streams, you know, just changing your business. Um, when um, these analysts would go out and interview these uh, CEOs, um, only 30% of them were actually doing that. The rest was doing old school stuff. So, and, and here's the thing. I don't know if people are familiar with yourself, Erica, the, the, the innovators dilemma. There's the, yeah, it was, I love that you're, you, you know that book, right? Chris, so Christian Claytonson or Christian Claytonson. Yeah. 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 Um, so the, the thing is people think that people are cultures a certain way because people are evil. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's simple. If I make my money from selling this thing and my school, my kids' school fees are paid and this kind, and this person comes in and says, no, we need to change all of this. Now we're going to do this. It's going to create fear and resistance. And that's so, so that's, um, and you find that companies who don't innovate and change, unfortunately, are falling by the wayside. I was looking at the stats now the day where they said companies used to last over a hundred years of that. I think the average now is about 13 years or something. It's, mm, it's, it's crazy. I can't remember the exact step, but it's, it's that, yeah, it's that far. So it's, it's literally that innovate or die has become, it's, it's the truth. Yeah. yeah. Well, to your point about innovators dilemma, if you haven't read that book uh, to the audience listening, it's a really good book. And it talks about how the cycle times of innovation are, are compressing and it also talks about um, just some of the problems that some of the bleeding edge companies have in being the first to market or, or having a technology or a innovation that's too far ahead of what the market is ready for. And then what ends up happening is you have a, another company that comes in behind them and, and builds a better mousetrap or sort of perfects whatever the product or service is and then creates something that the market is ready for. And then they're the ones mm -hmm. that are successful. And there's a lot of you know examples they give. Um, in there, and you see these examples every day. But I, but I think one of the interesting uh, things about that book is that book is focused more on sort of like a product oriented focus. But what you're saying sure. is that innovation concept is moving beyond just product development and product innovation, but more about just organizational innovation. You know, how do we as an organization roll with the changes and Perfect. continue to emerge and involve? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. So what so, do you? So Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, no. So, so it's almost like this term cannibalize yourself. So you mm -hmm. need to almost yeah. change. It's difficult. Like you have to bring it back to why people don't want to change because right now I'm selling this product and now you're talking about, I need to, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to do this. So maybe it's having both. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, but, but whether we like it or not, if you're not innovative, 
innovating. I mean, we've seen that. Uh, um, I can't remember his name now. It was Porter's Five Forces? He said, "Go and look at this part of your look at your competitor. Mm -hmm. You don't know who your competitor is anymore." Who would have thought Google and Apple and these people are playing in these markets that they're playing? In? You don't know where you're. And here's the scary thing: your com those guys are not even thinking about you. They're not looking at you to try to learn and emulate from you. They're just coming up with something new and eradicating and getting rid of you. It's scary. That's it a scary is. place to be. Mm. Yeah, and the lines are blurring in in terms of what defines an industry. So you look at. We had a guest on here a, a few weeks ago on this podcast. We had uh, a guest on uh, Walker Reynolds, and he was talking about Industry 4.0 and innovation within manufacturing. Really good interview. Um, but one of the things he talked about was Tesla. He started talking about Tesla, the company, and how Tesla is not a car company like most people think. It's really a data company. It's a tech company. It's a data company. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really interesting when you think about just that as an example, the, the lines are just getting blurred into terms of what our what our industry really is. And back to Michael Porter's five forces, you know, mm. that makes mm. the five forces model somewhat difficult to apply just because, you know, I how don't know how you apply that anymore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I guess, you know, looking at a couple comments here, here's a, here's a comment from Gasan <coughs> on LinkedIn. I'm not going to show it on the screen because it, it won't fit. It's a long comment. So I'm going to try and summarize it, but because it's really good, okay. but he says back to the title of this podcast, the CIO can help in these domains. And he lists four things. He talks about learning and growth, uh, the process perspective, customer perspective, and then financial perspective in, in terms of increasing value. Um, yeah. Let me see if I can show that. I don't think it's going to show here. So I'd agree with that. Okay. So what yeah. are your thoughts on that? On that comment, no, I'd agree with it. It makes sense. And, and just something I, for, I forgot about. I wrote a blog. It was about six, seven years ago. I said, you're, you're, as a CIO, start, talking more about the customer so one of the things i would do and if there are cios on the on the on the um, on the call the or heads of it go to your it department tomorrow call them all together and ask them who's the customer you'll be right. surprised by what and so as soon as they started to say jane in accounting or i said that's not my customer the customer is the one who pays the invoice when it goes out from this that's where we need to focus on so i would agree with that on that four so your strategy your digital strategy i mean for want of all these words, and that is a customer strategy, isn't it? Because that's you should. That's where you should focus. It's about bringing that experience to the customer. Yes, you need to keep the, your internal. And I wouldn't. I never call them customers. I call them partners. My internal partners happy. Keep them. You know, they you make sure that the finance system was up. Whatever they could do their month in. Then, but I think as a CEO, CDO, your focus has to be on your customer, your true customer, your real customer. Because if you're not focused on that customer, someone like Google or Apple or somebody else is focused on them. That's right. Yeah. So I think that that's very, very, very key. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point. So I, I guess just to summarize this all and, and sort of wrap up the the thread here, the conversation here, what what do you see as the most important, or let me, let me rephrase this. What do you see as the future of the CIO and chief digital officer role? I mean, in five or 10 years from now, how do you see these trends that you're talking about, all this evolution of the role? How do you see it trajecting into the future? So so difficult to predict, right? Because I always have the saying, if somebody comes and tells you what the future is, you tell them to leave your office. <laughs> so I have, to, so I, have to, I have to eat my owners. But if I, if I look at the literature, things like that, they said these terms will fall away. Everybody will become digital in the organization. Let's mm -hmm. let's say ten years, 
maybe not five, maybe ten. There won't be things like chief digital officer, CRO. I think it would have just morphed into everything is digital. I think so. If you look at the if you look at the workforce that's coming into you, I remember it's one organization I worked at, and we had, um, you know, some pretty good firewalls. We had put everything up. Um, you know, from a security point. And we were so focused on the external. And then we ran some things one day and my CTO came to me and he said, look here. So people within my organization were hacking to get out so that they could get to download their stuff and things like that. So mm -hmm. so it's, it's crazy that you're going to have this one person that says, we need to become digital and here's the new digital world. Think of 10 years from now. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense because everything is digital. If you look at these youngsters coming into the workplace, so I, I, yeah, I'm not sure what that role. I, I think it will just be a natural. They won't even use it anymore. They won't say digital strategy. They'll just say business strategy. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's super interesting. It, it's almost back to that creative destruction uh, thought or thread. It's almost like the ideally the CIO CDO role sort of destroys itself and becomes it embedded within the organization. A lot like. You know, that's one thing we, we talk about in some of our other thought leadership that, in content that we put out at third stage is we talk about change management and whether or not change management should really be a standalone, separate team, separate skill set, separate work stream within a transformation, or should it be embedded just in the DNA of the organization? Should it be the business that's really driving the change? Same goes here with technology or, or sort of that techno technology, technology visionary sort of role. It's almost like that has to be embedded in, in more of the organization. It's going to be embedded. Standalone. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, it's just a th thought, yeah. Like I said, um, I have to eat my own words. When I mean, everybody talks about the future, especially now, we don't know. But, uh, right. but, but yeah, but what I can see is digital will be pervasive. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. Well, so closing thoughts here, sort of the last question I'll, I'll ask is what, Given everything we've talked about, you know, we've covered a lot of different things ranging from how the role has changed, what the role is, um, how you see it evolving in the future, what skills are most important. You talked a lot about some of the softer skills that are important. But what what um, what would you what advice would you give to a new CIO or an aspiring CIO today? Just where we are in the world today and given all these trends and the backdrop you've described, what, what sort of advice would you give to someone that wants to sort of move into that role? So, yeah, so I just want to differentiate. So CTO role, then I would say become more tech because that's what the startups are looking for. All right. So but if we talk, if we talk specifically CRO, CDO type role, then go and do an MBA. So even 10 years ago, um, it wasn't there when I started, but in my second time I went for an interview, one of the things was an MBA. So become more business, uh, you know, to, um, and I think I have a, I have a sense of curiosity that you don't, it's, yeah, it's a difficult thing to say, follow this path to become a CIO. But what, what I would stress, if you're in, in, a, in, in an organization and you like that organization that you're in, learn the business, learn as much as you can and what digital can do for that business. That will naturally take you into that, into the, into that role. That's my, my mm -hmm. feeling is become more, yeah. become more, but think more like a business person. Don't think like a techie, oh, this AI, maybe as a hobby on the side, if you're still interested in that kind of thing. Right. Um, but yeah, but talk, but get get more involved in your business and understand what digital can do for your business. That's what I would yeah. say. Yeah. yeah and, that's and, great... and obviously, this, sorry, and, and, and the soft skills. 
things like empathy and that because of the pandemic and that those are now coming to the fore. So 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 do leadership skills, um, do um, public speaking uh, courses because it's all about being a good 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 storyteller and communicator. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. And those are sort of non-traditional skills or non-traditional areas of development that CIOs typically haven't thought about in years past. Correct. They've thought more about, you know, let me go get the data science certification or the AI yeah. machine learning certification or get certified in a certain type of technology. You can still certainly do that. I, I, I don't think we're, yeah. you know, we're, I don't think either of us are discouraging uh, CIOs no. or technical types to Not remain that. technical, but I think really broadening your, your view and their purview of what the role is and what the skills are required to be successful. I think that's what we're saying here is that there's a lot there. Correct. Today. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Ridwan. There's a great conversation, a lot to digest and take in there, and a lot of really good stuff. Uh, this is a topic we have not covered in previous episodes of the show, so really appreciate your your time here today. In fact, there's so much good stuff from that conversation to unpack that Kyler and I are going to do just that. But first, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation, all that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. We just had Ridwan Bardian on the show from our South Africa office at Third Stage. And uh, what were your thoughts about some of that conversation and some of those threads about CIOs and the evolving roles of CIOs, the skills they need, all that stuff we talked about? What were your thoughts on that, Kyler? Yeah, I mean, what interesting experience. I didn't even know that Ridwan had a lot of that CIO coaching experience. Um, I think that's that's so unique. Um, and in the fact that he really talks about kind of the, the business technologist skills involved in that evolution from a CIO or a, a CDO, chief digital officer. I also loved our audience throwing out some CDO names because chief data officer, that now might make a lot of sense. Um, right. So I think that there's lots of opportunities to kind of e expand on that business technical side making sure that those attachments are accountable for some sort of ROI so they understand right the the impact and the overall um, 
revenue or ROI uh, uh, business value that new technology needs to bring or that existing technology needs to either be alleviated regarding like technical debt or that needs to be um, uh, consolidated, those types of different things. Yeah, and I guess I never stopped to think about how the role has evolved and how the, the focus and the priorities of the CIO and CDO roles have changed over time. And so that was really fascinating to have that conversation with him and sort of walk through the evolution of the role and where it's headed in the future. Absolutely. And how unique it is to each organization. It used to be like you you kind of went through in, in that overall timeline, a really standardized role. You know, you had a CIO, you had an IT team, it supported whatever your technological infrastructure was. And that's just kind of how it worked in um, was typical for each sort of business structure or organizational design. And now a lot of times due to things like outsourcing or two more of a technical uh, friendly, if you will, or I guess tech savvy dashboards, those types of things that need for those hard analysts are, you know, are less, not that they're not important, but that structure really needs to match the DNA of the organization. You know, are you a very data heavy organization, then your CIO should have that larger infrastructure. But if you're, you know, more manufacturing product focused, it could be lots of different things. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. One of the audience questions was something, or it was more of a comment, I think, about how uh, he, he used to be the the person, the, the audience member was saying how he used to be a COO mm-hmm. in a manufacturing environment that was responsible for IT, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and like I said in the interview, that that's some of the, the, some of the best IT directors and CIOs, IT managers, CDOs, whatever IT leadership mm-hmm. role you want to talk about some of the most effective ones that I've seen, and especially in terms of transformation and transforming a business, um, have been the ones that really understand operations, even if, you know, whether they've been former CEOs or whether they've just gotten to know the business over time. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's important piece of advice that Ridwan said. And um, if I wasn't doing school drop off during that, um, that live stream, I was about to comment before you guys ended because it would, I was cracking up because you said, what was one key takeaway that you would have for anyone considering this? And he, he said like five. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> so I was like, that's perfect. He fits right in. No. Yeah, so, exactly. I think that that key takeaway, though, of learning the operations, learn the most you can about the business, and then you will create and increase your 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 overall value value to the organization. Um, And I think that's a really easy way for especially young professionals. If you are interested in following a career path, um, just learn more about your cross functional areas of whatever organization you you work for. And a lot of times I think, um, especially young professionals in that area or youngsters, as he calls them, (laughs) uh, you don't realize that if you go to these executives, if you go to team leaders, those types of things and say, Hey, I I really want to learn about what you do. You know, I have to say 99% of the time they're going to say, Oh, great. You know, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to do an interview. Um, very rarely do you find someone that's not willing to kind of give you that insight or collaborate with you, especially on that leadership team. I think a lot of times because they understand the importance of that cross-functional knowledge. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing, one question that um, I thought about asking, but I didn't want to muddy the waters too much, but maybe I'll ask you and get your thoughts. But I don't know if you recall this or not, but we had, I know you recall the interview, but you mentioned it before, uh, the interview with Walker Reynolds from... 
it's probably episode number 68, 67, 68, somewhere in there. Um, so it was a few weeks ago, we had Walker Reynolds on and he was talking about Industry 4.0. And one of the things he said that I, I, it took me a minute to sort of digest it. Now I'm sort of like comparing it to what, to what Ridwan said, mm-hmm. is he made a comment in that interview about how he views tech, technology and deep understanding of technology as something that's really important to, to anyone leading a business, because otherwise you can't understand how technology can transform your business. Mm-hmm. Whereas I tend to think of it maybe more like Ridwan does, which is, yeah, you need to understand the technology, but it's more important that you understand the business. Walker seemed to have a, I don't know if he necessarily said that technology is more important than the business understanding, but he he really emphasized that need to understand. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that sort of potential diverging uh, point of view that the, these two different guests had on that topic. Yeah, I mean, I think both are, are you know, very insightful in that piece. And I guess the way that I took it when it comes to Walker, and maybe I have a bias because I am a creative in technology, so I don't have those hard skills. I truly believe that technology is here to leverage the the business initiatives. But to Walker's point, I think what he's saying is he still codes because he's still understanding what the workforce is going through, which makes him Mm. a more impactful leader. And that's just kind of how I took it. But I think both perspectives, you know, are are really important to understand. And again, goes back to what does your organization need from that service leadership model? What do they need you to be able to understand? Yeah. Yeah, I think the commonality or the common ground that we're all agreeing on is you need both. You need the mm-hmm. the technical understanding, technical knowledge, but you, you definitely need the business understanding and business knowledge. But the business knowledge and understanding has been underrated in the past or under-focused on, underutilized. So I think that's uh, just a good lesson for, for anyone that wants to become a CIO or chief digital mm-hmm. officer, IT director, or whatever the case may be. I'm curious, Eric, since you have a unique perspective of hiring CIOs, COOs, those types of things. What do you look for in that true chief executive officer? Not many people have had the experience of hiring that level of a C-suite. And I assume it has to be pretty in depth, the interview process, the relationship building. Can you give us a little kind of look behind the curtain of how you've done that in the past successfully? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, this the hard skills are are easier a lot easier to quantify and measure and assess um, because either you you know something or you don't when it comes to you know a knowledge base that you're looking for you know it's it, it's pretty easy to vet that out the harder stuff to vet out is the more important stuff which is what kind of leader is this person what's their leadership style how does it align with our business so you, you end up asking a lot of questions of how do you how would you describe your leadership style um, you know, give me some examples of how you coach people in tough situations or how you deal with adversity or resistance to change, you know, give me some examples. So that sort of behavioral understanding is really important. And then, like I said, you know, if I were interviewing a, a technical, a technically focused role, like a CIO or IT director, I would also want to understand, you know, to help me understand, you know, uh, give me an example of how you have successfully deployed technology and, and the impact it had on the business. So operationally, what did the what what sort of changes did the business go through as a result of the technology? If they get hung up on, oh, I designed this really cool user interface and it was using cutting edge technology and uh, people loved it, that's not a good answer for me. For me, it's not good enough. I would yeah. need to hear like it really streamlined our ability to get visibility into you know our demand planning or whatever it is mm-hmm. and we were able to reduce inventory by this amount and if they can really tie it back to business objectives and goals results that that's something else i look for as well so those are a couple of things that come to mind 
Yeah, and that, that's right, you know, on point of what Red once said, you know, the, the most successful CIOs he's seen, that he's mentored, they really understand the overall business impact and how they're responsible for those KPIs when it comes to technology operations, those types of things. So, um, I mean, it's such a great conversation. I feel like we could talk to Ridwan for hours. Sometimes I do on our, our calls. But um, if you have questions about um, additional CIO um, coaching or the value of IT and you want to talk to Ridwan directly, you can always um, drop him a line. I did uh, put, if you are watching on, on LinkedIn or YouTube, um, that live stream, his contact information in there, or you can visit our website. He's also on our team page. Um, and he can, he's also very active on LinkedIn too. So he's got great kind of content that he puts out as well as some top 10 lists. So highly recommend following him and, and, um, consuming all that great insight he shares. Yeah. And he has a, a unique name. He's the only person on our global team that has the name Ridwan, which is spelled R I D W A A N. So if you just Google Ridwan third stage consulting, you'll, you'll find him. Or if you look on LinkedIn, you'll find him there. So. Um, those are a couple other ways to to look them up if you, if you don't see them on our website or you don't see the link uh, in, in the live stream. So good. Well, well, thanks for that that debrief and uh, thanks again to Ridwan for being on the show. That was a great discussion and uh, got a lot of good takeaways. And hopefully, it's helped some of you aspiring CIOs and current CIOs and past CIOs. Uh, hopefully, it's helped you all understand the role a little bit better and sort of where it's headed and ways you could be more successful in that role. So. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have uh, Adam Cheatham on the show. And Adam is a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage Consulting. And he's going to be on talking about uh, Microsoft Dynamics 365 implementation challenges. And uh, even if you're not interested in Microsoft D365 as a specific platform, uh, stick around because a lot of what he talks about is going to be relevant to any sort of enterprise application deployment. Uh, even though Third Stage Consulting is an, a technology agnostic firm, we deal with all sorts of implementations ranging from Microsoft to SAP to Oracle, et cetera. Um, the reason we wanted to sort of pick on this one focused technology is because there's some unique nuances in, that you need to be aware of when you're implementing Microsoft D365 when compared to SAP or Oracle or Workday or insert enterprise technology name here. Um, and so that's something that, that we want to unpack a bit is just understanding the nuances. And, and if, if anything, I, I hope that it, the conversation will help uh, everyone here understand what some of the different nuances are and the way you need to just navigate different types of technologies differently based on the strengths and weaknesses of that product. So I highly encourage you to listen, even if you're not interested in Microsoft products, because it is going to be relevant even if you're deploying SAP or Oracle or something different. So we'll have Adam on, we'll have Adam on the show after we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler, and Kyler, we're going to have Adam Cheatham on the show uh, here, and I just realized that you guys have, like, the same last name. It's crazy. It's Cheetah. You both have the name Cheatham. I mean, what are the odds of two Cheatham's on the team? I know. I said, well, the other day, one of our, our newer clients was like, is that your sister? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, uh, that's my wife. So, right. um, yeah. Wait, you guys are married? Yep. Did, I know. I just look did, so much younger than him. It's just like people are like, wow, that must be your like teenage sister or something. Like that. <laughs> right. Now, does HR know that you guys are married? I mean, I feel like I, I, I hate to expose the dirty laundry yeah. and all that here yeah. live on, on a podcast, but I uh, just want to make sure HR is aware. Well, you know, they are aware usually when our, our children are, um, you know, stampeding <laughs> through the office, they, they kind of figure that out. So luckily, you know, we have a very family friendly environment here at Third Stage. Yes, I know when my kids were younger, they loved coming in the office and they thought it was so cool. Now they have no, des- now that they're cool teenagers, they have no desire to come here, but they they loved it when they were that age. Um, well, good. Well, we're going to uh, have Adam on the show and he's going to talk about uh, Microsoft Dynamics 365 implementation challenges. And this is actually an interview that you conducted with him for our Digital Stratosphere sister podcast. And uh, we wanted to play you the clip here on this podcast because there's a lot of good lessons learned that relate to the topics we cover here. And uh, of course, we'll debrief on it afterwards. So let's cut to the clip of you interviewing Adam Cheatham talking about challenges of Microsoft D365 implementations. Thanks for having me. So Adam is a director of transformation and strategy here at Third Stage. So Adam, can you just give us a little bit of an introduction around your role at Third Stage? Yeah. So um, as a director, my responsibility is for helping build teams around um, our, our projects and our programs. Um, so when we have somebody come in and has an implementation that they're looking to have some help with or to understand their challenges and what it is they where their gaps are and what they need and help put together a team to uh, to solve for those needs and and then guide the project through to completion strategically. So uh, that's generally what um, I do in a nutshell, but it, we can talk a little bit more in detail about it as we go. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're talking about a specific system, and I want to kind of give just some background. Um, Microsoft Dynamics 365 is currently experiencing some implementation and resourcing challenges. When we have these conversations, the objective is to make sure that our client community and audience has the tools and tactics to overcome these challenges. It does not mean that we don't support D365 actually on our top 10 ERP systems of 2020, they're actually number one. So I just want to precurse the conversation with this is just something that we want to bring out of um, and lift the veil on how you can kind of overcome this. So that said, that precursor, Adam, can you give us just the landscape of the current challenges with implementing D365? Yeah, that's a, um, I think that there, there's a lot wrapped up in what you just said, but overall, um, as um, you had kind of this boom of, uh, of implementations that kind of came because of the pandemic and that uh, stressed an already challenged resource pool, particularly as it pertains to Microsoft Dynamics uh, platforms. Even before the pandemic, it was we were uh, helping a lot of clients with issues in staffing Dynamics 365 um, implementations just from a quality perspective, rather hit or miss. Um, and now that we see you, you fall on with the boom of, of ERP and digital transformation projects that happen 
as part of the pandemic and you're stressing an already stressed system, um, if you will. So what we're finding with a lot of folks is some of our, our, our clients have really good access to Dynamics 365 teams and then others uh, do not. So um, that, that's really the, the crux of it and making sure that you have good team members from your, your system integrator um, is a really important component of, of implementation success. So is this problem, just to clarify, is it unique to Microsoft Dynamics 365 or is this kind of an industry pain point? I'd, I'd say it's an industry pain point because of how projects are generally staffed. We've seen it with other software platforms as well. <clears throat> um, I think the difference for Microsoft Dynamics is that this was a challenge before the pandemic. Um, and uh, with most other providers, um, if you found a good solid system integrator, they had access to good solid resources and that, that wasn't as big an issue with other platforms. With Microsoft, it seems like it seemed to, um, you could find a good Im implementer and then still end up with bad resources just because of the nature of what you've, what you've done as it pertains to uh, the, the marketplace and staffing that project on the whole. And why do you think that is? Do you have any insight to that specifically? Um, I don't know if I'd say what uh, what I have is insight into <laughs> why that is from a perspective of, of that setup. Um, <clears throat> I, I suspect that there are a number of things at, at hand with the, the Microsoft Dynamics stuff. Um, one of them is that it is a, a, a very strong platform. And so it's been in demand for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that it's Microsoft and most people have all kinds of Microsoft tools as it is, and Dynamics becomes a, a, a feed into that. I think it speaks to the success of the platform. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the uh, the manner in which uh, Microsoft can be implemented. Uh, you don't actually have to be a system integrator to implement Microsoft Dynamics. We have a, a client that is implementing Microsoft Dynamics Business Central, and they don't have a system integrator at all. Hmm. You know, they don't, they decided to do all of their their work in house. So that's kind of part of the challenge. Um, I think that another part of it is uh, Microsoft doesn't get as involved in their implementations as other system integrators or, or uh, software vendors. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of a distancing there. So that might be a key, another part of it. Um, this is all speculation though. Yeah, Anything sure. that I've seen that is, is definitively, this is why it's hard to implement well, yeah. Microsoft Dynamics. Yeah. Um, the other part of it is just that it is a large and complex software package. Mm -hmm. um, and large and complex software packages are by nature difficult to implement, so. And what happens when you do have these implement implementation Ooh. challenges as a client? Does your timeline get pushed back? Does your budget increase? Can you just tell us some side effects of that overall story? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that there's a core assumption there that you have to um, recognize, which is you notice it early enough. <laughs> but generally, if um, if it's something that you notice early enough, um, you can make changes uh, to, to the project team. And you can request that those changes are made from your system integrator. Um, so if you find that you do have somebody that is underperforming, maybe they don't understand your business and they're not connecting with it. We've seen that recently uh, with some of our clients and saying, look, they just I don't know why it is I'm explaining how this works again. 
um, we're not special in what we do, but it seems like the the challenge is is in understanding our business. When you start noticing those types of things and start noticing that the quality that you're getting is is low, <clears throat> and and that you need to make a change. If you make those changes uh, fast enough, early enough, and accurately enough, you can limit the imp uh, impacts of your implementation. But if it's something that kind of goes on for a little while, um, some we'll continue with the example of somebody who is doesn't understand your business the way that they need to to, to design software around it. A person is going to continue to work uh, with a with a lesser understanding of uh, of the your business. And as they continue to work and build your software, that misunderstanding is going to be represented in what gets built. And then what you see is you see, start to see those types of things come out in testing. Um, and that's that's not unique to Microsoft. It's, it's a, an overall implementation thing. Actually, we talked to a gentleman uh, recently um, in Europe that was implementing SAP and uh they just the their in, integrator they could not find somebody on their integration team that understood their business um and that really caused a lot of challenges and in, in their go live chat uh go lives continue to get pushed back because their system integrator can't find teammates that understand how they work um on a microsoft side of side of things as you start to configure components of software um you want to make sure that that understanding is strong and, and well aligned towards what it is you do as an organization. Um, Cause at the end of the day, even the smallest tweak of understanding can lead to something being built um, um, inaccurately. Absolutely. And I want to dig into some of those tactics or, or strategies to be able to um, overcome some of those issues or barriers in just a second. But I just want to take a minute to recognize some of our global audience joining us. So we've got some Texas here in the United States, all the way over in Norway, um, some other United States in the East Coast. Um, so just a reminder, if you do have questions or want to join the discussion, just go ahead and and comment on whatever platform you're watching on and we will address your questions here um, a lot of times when we talk about a software specific piece of content we can get a lot of insight from our user community or mm -hmm. anyone that has experienced any issues as well so <clears throat> so feel free to engage with whatever social platform you're viewing from today um so let's back up just a little bit adam mm -hmm. when it comes to microsoft addressing the lack of resources or maybe the lower quality of integrators. In your opinion, have they done anything to kind of help resolve that in the marketplace? Um, that might be part of the challenge. I haven't seen anything that's this Microsoft leading the charge on fixing any of this. Um, and the fact that it's, it's been kind of consistent for Microsoft for quite some time um, is, is a part of the challenge. Um, Microsoft has a different type of relationship with their system integrators than most vendors and that they don't, um, it is very, very, very rare that Microsoft implements its own software, if at all. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're entirely dependent on their system integrator network. And part of that is, um, is as a result of the antitrust lawsuits that Microsoft had um, back in the day, and they were kind of forced to create some checks and balances in this in the way that they approach software. And their ERP is is something that is uh, impacted by those types of decisions. So the way that they <clears throat> they have it set up is it's kind of an arm's length type of thing. 
mm-hmm. even from a perspective of um, when you sign an, a, a contract with Microsoft for enterprise software, um, that's actually managed by by another company, the signature and the maintenance of that contract. So you have Microsoft that you buy the software for, you have this other third party that you contract with Microsoft through, and then you have a system integrator that is responsible for building the software itself. So um, I think this is that that kind of arm's length nature has led Microsoft to be less invested in solving this challenge. Um, but it also is a part of the creation of it because that dependence on their system integrator network creates a lot of openings for a lot of great things. Um, but as it opens for great things, it also opens for all of the things that come in with that. Um, and I think that's part of the challenge that we're talking about today. And so is that model unique to Microsoft or is that pretty typical Hmm. with other systems as well? It is pretty typical with other systems to have a system integrator network. Um, Microsoft is a little bit less directly involved in their implementations, where it's it's less common for you to know who you can call at Microsoft if you have a problem with your, your integrator. Um, whereas with others in for SAP, Oracle, and, and, and all of the others, there's usually somebody that's a bit more visible um, uh, from the from the vendor if you're working through the system integrator themselves. Um, I think there's also a, a thought process where when the system integrator um, is separated the way that Microsoft has them, you have less of a direct connection to the folks that code the software. Um, so uh, let me see if I can think of a, a way of framing it. Um, let's say Infor, for example, is building a lot of new um, programs, uh, the new functionality within their cloud suite. And Infor is creating that, and Infor knows how to implement it. Mm-hmm. Um, that knowledge then needs to, then gets passed down from Infor to the system integrators once it's built and, and effective. And then the, the the system integrators get a chance to learn it from the experts that, okay. that designed it and built it, right? Um, and have implemented it and all of those things. Whereas with Microsoft, you don't have that same internal consulting services network that okay. is, is expected to be the, well, now that Microsoft knows how to do it all themselves, then you add in the system integrator network and that knowledge transfer can happen. I think there's a gap there. Interesting. So when you are looking at a a software selection, which we do a lot here at Third Stage, do you take into consideration the challenges of implementation when recommending a specific software? Or, and how how much does that affect your recommendation for our clients as an independent and agnostic consultant? Yeah, so you have to do two things when you do this. You have to select the right software and then you have to implement it well. Those are two separate things. Um, the f- software functionality, it, um, when when the functionality is there, um, you know Microsoft will be recommended, and our assumption is that we're going to help find a partner that can help can do that. <clears throat> you can to to plan away from the risks that come with the Microsoft implementation is if they don't exist for other system integrators is not something that we 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 do. However. <clears throat> What, uh, what we do consider is that if we're going to implement uh, a software system that we know has some some challenges and Microsoft has its own unique challenges, every other software package has its own unique challenges. Um, but we, we, we work with our clients to plan around that. Uh, it, 
often becomes part of the risk uh, management tactics and 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 part of the risk log, you know, quality of resources and those types of things. <clears throat> and we do recommend that if uh, that um, you start to interview people before you sign and you know who you, who your key roles are. I always like to think about the systems architect mm -hmm. as well as the program manager from the system integrator. Both of those roles are folks that you should interview and become very comfortable with before you sign. Um, that's usually the best way of doing it, <clears throat> but they should be, those are two key critical roles that um, as we work with our clients and, and when we've suggested Microsoft Dynamics in the past, our focus then becomes on, let's make sure we got the right team behind this. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want to be stuck with bad resources for, for a long time um, so that it becomes more of the, the implementation readiness um, and the implementation management plan uh, to, to, accommodate for those things that we we know may become challenges along the way yeah absolutely adam's really hoarse from yelling at our kids so <laughs> little, i don't yell at our children lift, lift behind the curtain adam and i are married we have two two toddlers but he's right he does not <laughs> just a little joke lighten all of this very technical content we're here having a conversation with kyler and adam talking about microsoft d365 implementations we're going to continue the conversation when we return from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, as well as the audio podcast platforms. And we are here with Adam Cheatham and Kyler Cheatham talking about implementation challenges of Microsoft D365. A comment here from one of our, our LinkedIn users. So the lack of a system integrator has been challenging. I've had to deal with that too. Great call out, Adam. I look forward to learning more on how to deal with these kinds of challenges. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about um, let's talk about if you don't have a system integrator and maybe the quality of system integrator isn't on par with what you need as an organization. What are some things that you can do to overcome that? Um, well, I was and and I was recommending my clients that they consider that their system integrator is the technical team. Right, um, and you want to have technically um, skilled folks implementing that software. That should come not just from the system integrator, but also from the client side. Right, you you guys have to be able to match that as a client to be able to understand what's the the way the software is being built. And frankly, you're going to have to maintain that software and be and play a role in that in the future as well. So being engaged at that level, I think, is important. Um, but what we tend to recommend for our clients. Uh, um, 
regardless of software package, but when uh, that is a, um, a tactic for mitigating risk in general is to have an independent third party um, run your program management and your change management practices so that you're managing the implementation on the people side and the technical side is left to the folks that are that are um, skilled in it. If you are asking your system integrator to do things that they are not skilled in, um, they won't do them well. That's a simple yeah. thing, right? That's <clears throat> I'm not a hockey player. I've never been good on ice skates. So if you put me out on the ice with a hockey stick, you know what you're gonna what what you should expect from me. Um, not a lot. But <clears throat> on the other hand, if you um, if you take somebody who's been doing it their whole life and put them in a position where they uh, where it fits their skill set, um, and you just ha ask them, hey, you got one job. That's the technical implementation. Um, and we're going to bring in folks that are skilled in the other areas of program management and change management. Um, that's a real good way of mitigating that. It also creates a scenario where you have another set of eyes watching out for you. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's really hard about implementations is just the sheer fact that it's difficult to know what's just hard and what's going wrong. Um, and telling the difference and having a, an independent third party with experience in that and knowing the difference um, is really helpful to be able to say, are we having a challenge here just because we should be having a challenge or do we really have a problem that we need to confront and solve? Absolutely. So digging into kind of that that PMO role, is that something that you do that you come in and and help the client not only select the software, but then also interview yep. or kind of vet if you will si's yep we do that uh, that's one of the services that we offer um we generally recommend it to anybody that's hiring a system integrator that they take a real close look at that partnership because that system integrator is going to be a part of your life for 10 to 20 years um but yes we do those types of things um interviews um referenceable uh clients i always like the idea of referencing a client and not from a perspective of would you hire these people again or not because no system integrator or business is going to intentionally give you a bad reference but ask them about what their experience was when they faced challenges in the implementation how did this system integrator um help you through some of the conversations which were well we could code something brand new just for you or we could uh, um, help you change your business processes which is which I'm, a, um, I'm of the mind that there's a confirmation bias on the system integrator side, which is I've seen this software do anything, so I can therefore make it do anything. So my recommendation is that we just make it do what you want it to. Um, that's not always the right path and can create problems. And when you're talking about a system that requires the level of configuration and um, encoding that Microsoft does, that's not the way you want to approach the conversation. Uh, you want to know, uh, I need to change this software for good sound business reasons, as opposed to, oh, the system integrator said that they could do it. So we'll just do that because that gets expensive. Absolutely. And so if you are an organization that's talking to a system integrator or engaged with an SI and um, you don't have the knowledge or you don't, that's not your day job, right? To interview system integrators. What are some questions or some red flags that you should look for or ask in that interview process um the project plan that i would go i would go straight for that and the uh, one of the things that i really like about getting a project plan and a detailed one from your system integrator um, is it solves a lot of problems first of all if if you understand my business well enough 
you'll be able to put together a detailed project plan and you'll be able to tell me exactly how it is you think you're going to do this um, and you're, you'll have areas that are for contingencies when we're going to have these types of conversations in those ones. So a project plan that's specific to me as a client um, is it, uh, shows an understanding that I know your business well enough to actually create a project plan. Um, what the project plan also does is it gives you an idea of what, what a realistic timeline is. Um, you know, 12 to 18 months is um, a, a big window. Uh, and what that actually looks like and when we're actually going to go live are key components of what you should be thinking about deliberately. Um, so that's the, um, I like getting in my hands on that project plan up front mm -hmm. uh, so that we can start checking those types of things. It also puts you in a spot where you're better prepared when your project does start to have a detailed project plan. And as you start talking through that with your system integrator, um, you know, having it up front before you sign a contract so that it can be in there um is is a real benefit as opposed to starting that project planning afterwards while it's on the client's um dime if you will like you know is if you're paying for your project plan to be developed at a level of detail that you could have gotten to in the um in the commercial process um then you've, you're paying for something that you, you may not need to so I, I always like to get that level of detail as much detail as i can um, and it shows the level of quality behind the program management side of things and how it is that system integrator is going to approach a project. Yeah, definitely. That's great insight for sure. Um, and so important, right? Because that's a key player and a key piece of achieving in a su successful digital transformation. Um, so I'm curious, when, when you have a client that might have purchased D365, Mm -hmm. And maybe they're like mid-tier, mid-market, not a huge, um, huge company that would be a huge priority for, um, you know, a system integrator. Is there a, a, a lack of resources that might push out their timeline? Like, do you ever experience a scenario where they purchase the software, but they can't implement it for a really long time because there is no system integrators available or resources available? Yeah. Um, that's another thing that we, we see a, a good bit of uh, folks that sign a contract thinking that they're going to start within a couple of weeks because that's generally been standard and and it getting pushed out. Um, get that information up front before you sign. Um, know when your start date is going to be. Know who's going to be on your project and you can eliminate that problem. Um, there have been I've had a number of folks that are implementing uh, software packages that are um, signed and waiting. They're paying subscribers. Like keep in mind software is sold by subscription now mm -hmm. um so uh the idea that your software isn't going to be up and is your implementation isn't going to start for three months doesn't mean anything to the vendor they're already getting paid um so as far as they're concerned that's not a problem um from a perspective of getting that start date moved up uh because of resources if you haven't done your due diligence in the procurement process then you're in a position where um, you had to take the next available in line resource, um, and you're putting us about, well, what if that person's not the right one? Um, well, now you got to make a decision. Do you delay or do you go with who, somebody who might be the wrong resource for your project? And that creates other challenges. Um, the, this same question is kind of reminding me of somebody that I've been speaking with recently that, um, they have a team which has uh, uh their system integrator has uh, misjudged their business based on their data 
And so the um, they're working to try to figure out how to get the data cleaned up and migrated appropriately. Um, and they don't the, the they don't seem to understand the process. So go live has been delayed multiple times. I think at this point um, it was a. Uh, uh, the first couple of delays were out of April and it was a week at a time. Now kind of gone back and since. So what is it? What is the actual timeline for doing this right? Like, not don't tell me what I want to hear. This, which is we'll be live next week. Tell me what's the truth. And they added another month um, to say, all right, we'll have it up and running by this date. And the question becomes at this point, well, why is it taking so long? And is it because of a lack of quality of resources? At this point, you're kind of beholden to it um, in a way which is uh, gives you very few options. And that um, getting your Microsoft Dynamics platform up and running is uh, in in a month, which is now two months after your original go live, um, creates the problem of, well, what if I decided I wanted to fire these people? I can't. You know, at this point, uh, if I we're talking not only about my data, but about something that's ready to go live. Um, other than the data, we think. Um, and so I have to keep this team together who has put a, put me in this position by underperforming in the in the first place. Right. So if I, if I change a couple of data guys out and I swap in new ones, how much time does it take for them to learn mm -hmm. my business well enough to know how to run my data through this? It's kind of a um, a bit of a catch 22 and that yeah. there's not a good option here. So um, those types of things are uh, we we try to identify them earlier mm -hmm. uh, if we can so that we can solve for them before they become a problem. And I think that's really the critical piece of having that independent third party involved, just because it is sort of an investment in the insurance of your overall project, because this if they, you know, are independent, truly consultants would have the ability and experience to really see these types of things coming so that, mm -hmm. you know, clients aren't in a situation where they have no choice but to go forward on somebody else's timeline and have zero control of their own project. Yeah. Um, something you said really stood out to me there. And so I want you to clarify if you can. So you have to pay like for that SaaS service even before you implement it? Yeah. So, um, and this, uh, you're just as surprised as some of our clients are. Okay. You pay for your side, you pay your first, um, and depending on terms, you pay your first licensing fees upon signing a contract. Um, wow. and typically you sign your contract with your software vendor. Um, well, it's, what's the better way of putting it? It's not common to sign with a system integrator and then with the software vendor it's mm -hmm. more often either the other way around where you sign for software and then the system integrator or you sign them both together as a package deal and you your your payment is due upon signing um this is something that uh, you know we spend a lot of time talking about internally about the impacts of um subscription software uh -huh. uh, Five, 10 years ago before this was a uh, was the mainstay in the marketplace, it was easy to talk to a vendor and say, you know what? All right, we got our licensing fees nailed down. They're perpetual licenses. You buy them once, you own the software. And it was easy to say, but we don't want to pay those license fees until the software is up and running, um, mm -hmm. until we go live, right? Um, it creates an incentive to actually go live yeah. and, and those types of things. There are some licenses that you'd pay for up front just because you had to have some to use the software and to build it itself. But the bulk of them could be pushed off until go live 
at which point then you pay you buy your licenses because as far as the system the the vendor is concerned you know a million dollars in licenses on day one versus on go live you know today versus a go live still a million dollars the number hasn't changed whereas with subscription services now you pay up front and it's really difficult to get that negotiated out um and then you you pay for licenses whether you're using the software or not um it's either quarterly or annually um most of the time but yeah you pay them before you use them wow i had no idea that was the case that seems like there would be zero accountability on the side of the vendor to help their customers they're already getting paid i mean there have been we've we've helped a lot of clients uh, um with with uh, licensing challenges that um had a failed implementation never went live and they're stuck with licenses that they don't use wow well that's a, a podcast for another time for <laughs> sure. absolutely because i have a lot of questions but i won't completely derail and hijack our our conversation here we're here having a conversation with Kyler and Adam talking about Microsoft D365 implementations. We're going to continue the conversation when we return from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, as well as the audio podcast platforms. And we are here with Adam Cheatham and Kyler Cheatham talking about implementation challenges of Microsoft D365. So if you find yourself as an organization, you know, not for the fault of your own, just what you don't know, you don't know, right? Um, mm -hmm. In a situation where they are kind of in this really hard dynamic of being right in between a system integrator that they've already engaged and a software that they're struggling to implement, what are some things that they can do um, to help move the project forward or at least triage to make sure they're not blowing their budget or blowing their timeline? Um, well, for starters, get a good, clear idea of where your implementation is is it on track or and, and what does it look like you know you don't want to find out that you're building the wrong software and testing um that's months and months and months into the project um but at the same time um you, you know having a good feel for the uh, how well it's going early and often is is really a key component of that so that um you know that all right you know these people these folks are are really understanding my business and and um so i i feel confident in that mm -hmm. microsoft in particular um has a, a number of different types of ways of of working that um, are advantageous in this that you might find yourself being able to take advantage of a system integrator who is 
um, focus on your industry. Mm. Uh, Microsoft by far has the most, creates the most opportunities for intellectual property from system integrators, uh, where you have Microsoft Dynamics platforms that are then built in to fit different niche industries. Um, there are uh, steel making and metals accelerators for, for, for some system integrators. Others are more focused on advanced warehousing and then their own intellectual property in that. Still others more for things like textiles or for agriculture or um, all kinds of different verticals that Microsoft licenses um, through system integrators called value-added resellers mm -hmm. who add their own flavor to the Microsoft platform. And Microsoft is a, a bit more open with allowing for that type of thing than other providers. So one of the things that you can do to get a leg up is see if you can find a system integrator. Uh, food and beverage is another good example um, who specializes in your industry um, so that, you know, at least from the very beginning, if they have intellectual property built around something that's unique to you, um, the likelihood that they understand your business and industry is, is greater. Yeah. Definitely. That sounds like a, a really smart approach. So I'm curious if any any business is kind of immune to these challenges. And I'm just thinking through like bigger multi-million dollar software packages with the bigger system integrators, those types of things. Are are those challenges felt by that size of a project and client as well? Yeah. And um, I'm of the mind that those are actually more expensive problems and harder to detect um isn't it we'll, we'll say um we'll take a hypothetical client with a hypothetical scenario right so um you let's say you're a five billion dollar company implementing microsoft dynamics finance and operations or finance and supply chain whatever they call it today um and you have a multi-year implementation you got a very very large system integrator that's helping you through this um, and generally the, the biggest system integrators, um, when they encounter challenges, the first thing they do is add another body to it. Um, and then the second thing they do is add another body to it. <laughs> and you can guess what the third and fourth things are, right? Um, so what ends up happening is you end up with this army that masks the problem, um, and increases the cost and drags out the timeline. Cause now we've got people that are onboarding that need to come up to speed. They need to have an impact. And whether or not they're even quality resources, um, you know, you're, you're throwing the problem at itself at that point because you're just rolling the dice on it. And you end up in a spot where you have an army of people that are assigned to your project and you don't have any idea which ones are quality and which ones aren't. Um, so they, you, you end up masking the problem until all of a sudden you can't go live. Um, and as a $5 billion company, you probably have been working on this for a couple of years mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you can't do it, can't go live and you're trying to figure out why. Um, and why did it take us so long to learn this? Mm -hmm. and it's, well, because it's been masked. Um, you know, we've been trying to solve it by, by not taking the approach of understanding what the problem is in the first place, which is why I think an independent third party is an important piece of the program management of software selections, because that system integrator has no reason to tell you that, well, you know what, we got a bad, um, a bad resource here. So we're going to add another one to help that bad resource. Uh, they're not going to tell you that. They're just, they're just going to go and they're going to do it. And you're not going to know the reasoning behind it um, until you end up in a lawsuit. 
because you, you'll never know the difference. Uh, so those larger companies, I wouldn't say are immune to it. Um, I would say that it takes longer to see it. And then they tend to have the have more resources available to throw at it when it does become more expensive, right? So if we end up blowing our budget by double, um, you know, $5 billion company is going to be able to handle uh, handle that. Let's say it's a, um, let's say it's a two and a half million dollar implementation and now it's a $5 million implementation. Um, a large company is going to be able to handle that a lot more effective than a, than a, um, a smaller company that doesn't have the resources to spring another two and a half million bucks um, out of nowhere, because that's not a rounding error for them. It's material. So um, the problems can be bigger with the bigger organization and take longer to identify there. Uh, the, there's also the the benefit of resources that those longer, larger firms have in being able to, to stomach that and, and get through it. So, so can you as third stage or as another independent third party, um, can you actually get that information from the system integrator um, to oversee the project? Or is there just some read between the lines strategies that you just know out of experience? Um, you're never going to get the full story unless it, it goes to litigation, right? At that, and, and even at that point, you still might not because um, contrary to popular belief, um, when you go to when you go to litigation, it's not everything becomes available it's more of a we're going to search all of the documents for these keywords and see if uh and try to get 99 percent of the documents um that are relevant and then try to figure out how to sort through all of them and again when you when you're that large of an implementation the details are, are um more difficult to put into context especially way after the fact um, and then at the end of the day, those conversations on the system integrator side tend to be internal ones, um, unless you bring it up, right? So-and-so isn't performing well, and they uh, they literally asked me if we are a make-to-stock company today. Um, it's, what in the world are you talking about? Um, you know, so it's the obvious things that are easy to solve that, that, that get solved and are visible to the client, but the rest of that stuff is not stuff you'd ever even be privy to the information that would that would lead you to even think that there might be a challenge. So having that independent third party who is able to say, that guy over there, um, he's not getting it. Or that girl over there, she's not getting it. Um, let's let's see if she needs something to help through that. Like I think that the the part of the the independent stance that we take isn't to say, that one, that person's a problem, get rid of them. It's a, well, we have a challenge to solve it, right? So mm -hmm. um, if we find that we're having challenges with resources, what we typically do is we find ways of giving them uh, more support um, to, to see if we can't help them become more successful mm -hmm. because there is a, a an opportunity cost to the idea that you would change people. Right. You lose that value of the knowledge that they've already gained. Um, and you got to plan around those types of things. Yeah, and that's just basic change management, you know, partner resolution. There's we never really go in, you know, with guns ablazing, if you will, yeah. um, to try and change everything. Um, our position typically is the client advocate, but also in conjunction with the other partners that we work with to be able mm -hmm. to solve for the the maximum business value for our clients. So I think that's really important to understand because a lot of times. 
there's misperceptions around third stage that we, yes, we are always going to do what's best for our clients, but that doesn't mean that we don't work across across the table with different SIs all the time and members. Well, that's, we're, we're here to be a partner for, for all those involved, right? That's the, the general goal, at least from a third stage perspective, which is to say um, everybody here wants the same thing, which is to go live on time and on budget and do this effectively as a team. And that's mm-hmm. a approach that we come at. Absolutely. So I want to kind of ask you, um, I know you can't talk a ton about your expert witness work um, because it is extremely confidential, but can you just give us an overview because you are an expert witness, third stage is an expert witness a lot of the time um, for these, these soft failed implementations that do lead to some sort of lawsuit. So can you tell us kind of the role that you guys play in that? Um. Consultant and investigator, I think, is the easiest way of putting it. Um, when we start to learn, when we get pulled into the expert witness stuff, our first job is to figure out what went wrong and why, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's a big part of it, and then kind of consult on the case itself. Um, so what, where, what did go wrong on both sides, right? So um, client says system integrator blew it. System integrator says, well, client also blew it. Um, so who blew it? We, we all did at this point. But the, when it comes down to the uh, litigation, it becomes a, a, a matter of what were the, the failure points that were the most impactful? Um, and how does that look as it pertains to the, uh, the success or failure of the implementation itself? Interesting. Yeah, that's, um, that's definitely something that leads to our, our independent status, our non-biased status is a, a lot of ex, expert witness work because we don't have any relationships with SIs um, or vendors from a financial standpoint or um, a biasy standpoint. So I think that that's important to know too. I'm curious, we talked a little bit, getting back to D365, mm-hmm. is there, a, we talked about the industry size, the business size, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being immune to it. Is there any location or global impact for maybe multinational organizations or emerging market organizations to be aware of when it comes to implementing D365? Um, If you're thinking about it from a global level, um, the... I'll try to think of the best way of framing it because at the global level, the likelihood that you um, find one system integrator that's going to do it all across the world is uh, generally lower um, than than to have one for each area, um, or at least with interrelated folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that on a global scale, if you're looking to implement, if you're looking to go big bang and do everybody all at the same time, um, you want to have one of those very large uh, system integrators and somebody to keep an eye on them. Yeah. Um, that can support each location um, individually as you're building this uh, globally. If you're talking more of a phase rollout country by country, mm-hmm. um, I like a more localized approach uh, that says we're going to build it here and then we're going to uh, lift and shift it to somewhere else. Um, and even at that, if you have one large team that was going phase to phase with one of those larger system integrators, what we've uh, what we see more often is that you still end up with different teams locally. Mm-hmm. Um, so having somebody 
you don't necessarily have to have the same system integrator site by site if you're doing that type of a rollout. Um, and then since it's generally a different team when you get on the ground, even if it was the same integrator, um, you don't have the the knowledge transfer uh, benefits of using the same one as you would if it, if you were doing a global big bang type mm -hmm. of deployment. So. And what about those mid-tier businesses that might be located in Africa or the mm -hmm. Middle East or areas that, that might not be a Microsoft hub? What are some considerations for that? We obviously know the challenge of connectivity, right, as a, a cloud-based software. But mm -hmm. what are some other things to consider when considering D365? So uh, part of it's the two different software packages, right? you got finance and operations and you got business central. Um, FNO is the big... The big tier one software, Business Central, is more the the, the tier two smaller software package, um, and that's the one that uh, in, in most developing areas you find more common. Um, the uh, the advice I would give those folks is um, saving a dollar today um, is gonna it could potentially cost you quite a lot more money later if you don't do things properly. So cutting a corner, getting the cheapest system integrator out there, um, doing it yourself uh, or, or things that I would, I'd suggest that you take a real strong consideration of the risks that you create in those types of scenarios and, and decide whether or not you're willing to accept those risks. But doing it yourself, um, you get, you don't get a lot of support from anybody and even project management if you don't have that skill set in-house um, becomes a challenge um, hiring a, the cheapest system integrator out there um, well you know sometimes you get what you pay for um, so do you have what it takes on internally to, to give them the support that they need or in both of these scenarios do you have an independent partner who can help you understand when things are going a little sideways because Sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees when you're in the middle of things. Mm -hmm. That's definitely good advice. And if you are a, a global organization um, or are located in somewhere outside the U.S., just a reminder, we do have offices um, in Africa, APAC in Australia. We have presence in Hong Kong. And then we also um, are located in Europe. We have a Europe office, too. So if you do have questions and you're not in the greater United States, or North America, we also have um, an in-language presence for Latin America too. So uh, lots of opportunities there. If you do have questions about your specific situation, feel free to reach out to us. Um, but just to wrap up here, Adam, if you were to give one tip to a client that is considering D365, implementing it within their organization, what would that best practice be? I don't know if I like being pigeonholed to one tip, um, but what I what I will say is no one ever listens to me when I say that. So feel free to give as many tips as you'd like to. <laughs> well, so um, for starters, before I answer the question, I just want to say thank you to everybody that, um, that that's joined us today. Um, and and for for those of you from Norway, if I spoke to you this morning, hello again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> others, uh, you know, on the line here in the states and elsewhere. You know, we really appreciate your um, you guys joining us for this conversation. I think that Microsoft Dynamics is a real powerful platform um, and is and, and has a lot of benefits to it that um, 
you know, the things that we talk about today shouldn't preclude you from buying that one in favor of a different one um, if it's if it is the right software package for you. So um, I guess then my my tip for somebody that if I was to, to narrow it to one um, would be that uh, make sure that you get an extra set of eyes on things. Um, you know, the 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 benefit of having somebody even from a monitoring perspective um it, it may pay dividends way down the road and mm-hmm. that they, you know we at third stage for example we have a habit of being able to see things around the corner um that the that our our clients aren't knowledgeable enough in erp implementations to see them and that the system integrators it's normal for them so it's not an around the corner they already expect it and since they already expect it they're not really um feeling like it's important to say a lot about it because it's normal for them. Mm-hmm. It's not normal for you because you guys don't implement software every day. Um, so ha- having somebody that can help identify those areas that are coming and what the, what it is those are looking like so that you can know how it's supposed to look is really powerful. So mm-hmm. that would be my suggestion is ha- having a um, intentionally having a set of eyes that is designed just for the sheer fact of making sure that the program is managed properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of times the benefit of a third party um, doing that separates the um, the fox from the hen house, if you mm-hmm. will, um, and puts that that level of, um, of visibility in a place where it can be more effectively um, managed. Absolutely. Really well said. Just a, a reminder and some awareness tactics you to be successful with this, you know, very powerful software. So thank you so much Adam, for joining us today and sharing your insight. Okay. Thanks, Kyler and Adam. Thanks for being here. This great conversation. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll debrief and dive into a couple of the themes that we picked up on during that conversation. First, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 72. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler. And Kyler, we just had Adam Cheatham on the show talking about D365 implementations. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation, that interview you conducted with him? Yeah, I guess in in even being in the industry for a few years now, sometimes I don't realize, um, you know, the the things that seem like common sense and obvious in customer service to me, when we talk a lot of times about vendors, that isn't always the case um, when it comes to, you know, utilizing their software, buying their software and thinking that that relationship really is more customer service based. A lot of times it's not. Um, And so I think that's the one thing that we really take away from this conversation. And 
And Adam also did our sunsetting of Great Plains. So I said, are you sure you want to go down the Microsoft, you know, route again? But um, I think he's just, he, his passion is really just exposing what pain points could potentially derail uh, uh, overall implementation, no matter the vendor, you know? Um, yeah. So I think he, you know, he just takes that independent and agnostic lens and looks at something a lot of times and says, you know, we should talk about this to our audience community. And of course, I'm always up for a good podcast live stream. Um, so him talking about that. But I think the thing that a lot of times even I was surprised at is when you have these these implementation resourcing challenges. So say you're not able to find a system integrator, you're not able to, um, you know, find the actual resources that you need to go in to implement. Um, many times that can obviously derail your timeline and derail your budget. And I thought when you go in and purchase a system, you can implement it whenever you want. And that's actually not how that works at all. So that was a big learning for me because as an organization you would assume i bought the software i bought the license it's mine you know i can implement it whenever i'm ready and a lot of times that's not how that exactly works so forward thinking that is just so important to your overall strategy whether you're looking at any system understanding the timeline and understanding the localized resources available for you to be able to go through that implementation successfully yeah. And also, you know, looking at ways you can build internal competencies to help mm -hmm. minimize or at least reduce your dependency on those outside resources is another, you know, another lesson from that, that whole thread too. Absolutely. And, and that's, um, that's very, very true. And just the overall transparency of what that team structure needs to look like and any gaps within it. And that's a lot of times what Adam talked about he and team come in and do is say, okay, well, we might not be able to implement this today because the market's very saturated, the, the timeline is a little extended. But when you look at your overall core team, there's a lot we can do in that time to ensure that your implementation is successful um, and understanding those workarounds. And the, the industry, as we know, is always so intertwined with different biases, with, you know, different um, pain points to be able to go through implementation that a lot of times having that experts, it's like, okay, I get it. You know, I have the, the overall lens of that D365 right now is challenging to implement. And here's how I've done it with my other clients. I just feel like it could be such an asset to having that, you know, a comfort level even to that project transformation team. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's just so many things you talked about in that interview that are, um, just important reminders and understandings and things, pitfalls and things you've got to navigate is, is any implementation of any sort of technology. Yeah. And I think the thing that surprised me is I assumed that like money talks a lot of times, you know, the bigger organization you are, the bigger budget you have, then you kind of are immune to these pain points. And, and as he said, that's not the case. You know, this is not something that any um, size business, any specific industry, those types of things are immune from. Uh, so it, I thought that that was pretty interesting. Like, does it ex does small business, you know, is that small to mid-sized business tier more effective than those multi-billion um, business tiers that uh, are investing in D365? Because we know it is a huge scalable software. And um, he said, no, you know, it, nobody is immune to resourcing challenges when it comes to the software community. So I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a 
another challenge with a lot of different deployments too with, with that resource uh, shortage and it's not just the the number or quantity of resources it's also just the quality too making sure you've got exactly. the right resources. yeah and yeah. and he talked about you know in that conversation um you know if i was going through an implementation i would rewind that conversation to write every tip down he talked about how to make sure you are finding a quality SI, those types of things, what to ask them, what to, you know, go through the interview process understanding. So that's going to be a huge asset to ensuring that, you know, you're not having someone that's going to just, you know, ghost you in the next week or so. So. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, good. Well, that was a good, good conversation and uh, good to have him on the show again. And he's, he's probably our most frequently returning guest on the show, just given uh his tenure at third stage, as well as uh, his, his role and his seniority in the company. And he's, he's a great uh, guest to have. So we appreciate uh, you guys having that conversation and sharing it with us here today. So I uh, want to thank you again, Kyler, for another great episode. And thank you to the audience for listening in today, all your great feedback uh, along the way. Be sure to subscribe to us uh, wherever you listen to or watch podcasts, which includes uh, which could include YouTube, LinkedIn, or any of the audio podcast platforms. And if you could just drop us a review too, we love to see what kind of reviews you have. And we're trying to we're trying to escalate our, our reviews on all the podcast platforms, uh, our, our five-star rankings, if you will. So we'd love to hear whatever feedback you might have there. So thank you all for being here today. We will see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week in the meantime. Take care.